Hey guys, uh, this is Darren from the future. Uh, I'm just dropping in at the start of this podcast to apologize in advance. The audio quality this week is not what I would want it to be, and it is entirely my fault. Basically, there was a family situation which meant that I was recording in a different location that I would want to be. Uh, We had scheduled this recording with Scott weeks in advance because obviously time zones are a major issue. He had very kindly volunteered to record at frankly, an absurd hour of the morning for him, and we didn't want to risk rescheduling and making it more difficult to kind of, like, record this episode with a guest like Scott, who who we really like, and who had gone out of his way to accommodate us. So I made the decision in the moment that I would try to record in my location as best I could with the materials that I had. The audio quality is, is not what I would want, it's not what the show usually is, and I just want to, like, just flag that in advance, let listeners know, but I do think the discussion itself is is great fun. I think it's a really insightful conversation about Halloween H2O. I think Scott is a great guest. Andrew and Joey are as fantastic as usual. And basically, I, I hope you enjoy, with my sincerest apologies, for the somewhat sketchy audio quality. Cheers. Bye. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the Halloween franchise from now until sometime in early January. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm feeling improved, uh, Darren. Um, how, 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 how are you feeling? Um, uh, You're feeling significantly improved over the past three weeks, yeah. maybe even four. Yeah, yeah. Possibly yeah. From, five. From, from, from our last outing. Yeah, I'm in fine fettle. <laughs> yeah. How is your fettle, Darren? <laughs> I, I, I don't know if that's an appropriate question for you to ask me. I'd have to talk to our HR department. <laughs> okay. But it's okay because we were joined by our special guest co-host for the season, the fantastic Joey Kyo. How are you, Joey? Hi. Fettel always reminds me of the Queen because right before she died, they were like, no, she's in fine, Fettel. She's grand. Not an, uh, okay. not an Irish person. I don't know why I did that in, <laughs> in an Irish accent. Just in a British. <laughs> yeah, you'd say Fettel a lot of a horse. Like, check out the fettle on that horse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Such fine fettle. <laughs> <laughs> now, 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 I, now I feel like I definitely need to ask Kate to work and ask that yeah, question. whatever um, you're into, Andrew. <laughs> no judgment here. And we've got a special guest this week. We were talking about... I think you can judge me if that's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about Halloween H2O, the sixth sequel, seventh movie in the Halloween franchise. And joining us for this discussion, we have a fantastic guest returning to the show, the wonderful Scott Mendelson. Scott, how is your fettle? Oh, uh, what's a fettle again? <laughs> I'm the only American on this podcast. So. No, no, I'm good. All is well. I'm happy that I finally got a decent sound system set up. I've got a slightly improved webcam and I've got a real microphone. Nice. That actually works. It took a while to get to figure out how it would, yeah. But now I don't have to spend 10 minutes setting up every time. We should apologize to listeners. The audio quality on my end may be a bit rougher than usual this week. I am broadcasting from inside a pillow. The turn is in a tent. <laughs> yeah, the, the opening scenes of Ridley Scott's The Counselor. That's where I'm podcasting <laughs> from. Um, That's Scott- my favorite scene of that movie. It's where somebody tells Michael Fessbender not to do something. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, then he does it. <laughs> yes. It's, then he does the thing. <laughs> yeah. Is there... 
Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah, yeah. Also, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind also has the vibe of the place where I... And Ro- Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Ro- sorry. Is oh, there... <laughs> <laughs> Romeo plus Juliet? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think we can use it as an and. But Scott, as we've been going along, we're covering the Halloween franchise. Sorry, it's... I interrupted you, Scott. Um, each of our guests, uh, we've been asking them, like, what your relationship to the franchise is. Do you... Have you seen all of the Halloween movies? Do you have any opinions about the Halloween franchise? as a great slasher franchise and like what are your ta- what's your take on michael myers as like a slasher icon slash horror movie villain when i was growing up in the early to mid you know when i was first noticing movies in the mid 80s early 90s um halloween was sort of one of the trifecta alongside nightmare on elm street and friday the 13th so it was always a, a surprise to me that the first halloween had gotten really good reviews which you know even then i was like you know horror does not generally get you know and let's be honest, most of the Friday 13th movies are not good films. I like Jason Lives, but whatever. Um, so it was always funny to me that this one, like, wait a minute, this film, this franchise started as like a masterpiece that people compare to Psycho? That's interesting. So I did see it, you know, eventually. And I thought, well, this is solid. I can see why people like this. I can see why, you know, movie nerds like this. The sequels, I think Halloween 2 is a mediocre slasher picture, but... On that bar, it's it's fine. Same thing with Halloween 4, which is basically a loose remake of the first one, which I think was kind of the the point. It's funny, in the skewed, crazy-ass continuity in this franchise, there's like three or four versions of like Halloween 1, yeah. where Michael Myers did a thing all those years ago, and oh shit, now he's back. And no one will listen to Dr. Loomis, or in the case of the Blue Mouse versions, or this one, frankly, Laurie Strode. You know, there's danger, there's danger, but then there's danger. This is one of the better ones of those, I would actually argue, other than the, you know, the first one, obviously. The Rob Zombie films, I don't think they work, but they're sure as hell interesting, and they have aged very well by, vir- by virtue of marching to the beat of their own drummer. Yeah, great. I think the first act of Halloween 1 is solid. I mean, sorry, ju- uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween is solid. I think the middle tries to cram, like, the entire... 85-minute Halloween movie into one act. And then the entire third act is a pretty generic, you know, Michael versus the final girl sequence. Whatever. I'm actually not a fan of the Blue Mouse pictures, with one exception. Uh, I like Halloween Eds. Oh. I think, to me, that's the only one that feels like a David Gordon Green picture. Yeah. And I think it's certainly the only one that tries to do something different that isn't baked in nostalgia. I think the first, I mean, one of the reasons I didn't like Halloween H2 2018 is that I felt that Halloween H2O did a lot of that stuff better with a lot less fanfare. And they didn't spend the, and they didn't spend the entire press tour saying, it's all about grief and trauma. This is a serious movie. You have to take it seriously. Ooh. Um, sorry, you were about to say something. No, I was just about to say that, yeah, I feel like that is one of the things that we'll never end up talking about when we talk about this movie, is the way in which it feels like it's been somewhat reclaimed in the wake of the David Gordon Green movies, particularly as a counterpoint to them, where this has been seen as something of a first draft, and some would argue a more successful draft, of what those movies kind of attempt to do uh, with the character of Laurie Strode and with the idea of trauma and the idea of Michael as this monumental event that exists kind of just drifting through the world causing carnage. But I'm sure we'll we'll get into that. But I think, yeah, the, the interesting thing about the Halloween movies is that they exist largely as trend chasers. 
Like, outside of the first one, which is a codifier. It's a movie that codifies a lot of stuff that was happening in the culture. We talked about it. It's not really the first slasher, but it's what people tend to think of as the first slasher. But ever since then, it feels like the series has been playing catch-up to what horror has been doing in a given moment. Halloween 2 is an attempt to make a splatter film, for example. Halloween 4 is an attempt to make a franchise horror movie. Even something like, say, Halloween 6 is like, okay, we're doing a final Michael Myers movie, just like we did a final Jason movie, just like we did a final Freddy movie. Um, and I think what's interesting about H2O is that it kind of exists in a space where it is trend chasing, but it's also the first time that it feels like it's maybe a little bit ahead of the trend as well. Yeah. Where yeah. we'll talk a little bit about the production of this. It's just worth kind of rushing through this because it's insane watching these movies to think that like Halloween 6 was only three years before Halloween H2O. Yes. Like there are six years between Halloween 5 and Halloween 6 but only three years between Halloween 6 and H2O. And yet it feels like they exist in entirely different, like, cultural contexts and milieus. They, like, you could tell me that they were made a decade apart. You could tell me that nobody made a Halloween movie for 10 years, and then they made H2O, and I would believe it. But, like, this movie was obviously kind of rushed into production. After Halloween 6, you know, critical reception, not great. Box office, also not great. And we talked about how with Halloween 6, the movies moved over to Dimension, which was the you know, horror movie branch of the Weinstein company, Miramax. Uh, there was talk immediately of downgrading them direct to video, which is what Dimension did with many of its core franchises. For example, you know, the Hellraiser and Children of the Corn franchises, which went direct to video and like never came back, um, allowing for the Hellraiser streaming movie last year, which is still kind of technically direct to video. Um, and basically, there was plans to just rush a sequel into development. They hired writer Robert Zappia, who is still credited uh, as the story uh, writer for H2O and also as one of the screenwriters on it. He came up with a pitch that was known as The Two Faces of Evil. And basically, he was given a complete blank slate. He was told there would be no returning protagonist, and he was told that he could do whatever he wanted as long as Michael Myers was the villain. So... Zapia apparently decided to do what all the Halloween sequels have done to this point, which is chase some trends. Uh, it was originally going to involve, first of all, there were going to be two cops that would be chasing Michael Myers, uh, the characters, um, and they appear in the final movie. They appear in the opening scene of H2O, uh, played by Matt Winston, I think Bo Bill Chomp or whatever. Um, but they're basically, they're going to be Kincaid and Blake. They were going to basically be investigating and chasing Michael Myers. That sounds a little bit like Seven, because you have the older African-American cop, and you have the younger, more naive police officer who's trying to figure out, like, what's going on. That was the first pitch. And then, not to, not to be outdone, Zapia also decided that what he'd do is he would add a little bit of Silence of the Lambs into the mix. So, not only would Kincaid and Blake be chasing Michael Myers, they would be consulting a serial killer known as Gabriel Kane. And by the way, apparently Miramax wanted, like, Kevin Spacey to play that character. That's a bit on the nose. Yeah. Just a little. Lance Hendrickson is right there. <laughs> but he was going to basically to consult to catch on them. And apparently, like, you can trace various aspects of this. They remain part of the pitch up until H2O. Like, the part of Kincaid was cast as Charles S. Dutton. And that was only written out weeks before they began shooting. Like, Charles S. Dutton from Alien 3 was supposed to play this kind of Morgan Freeman-esque veteran cop who would be chasing Michael Myers. 
until a rewrite weeks before they went before camera. It's like, we don't really need that character at all. Hmm. Uh, that is also, incidentally, why this is the shortest movie in the Halloween franchise, because they deleted an entire subplot <laughs> before they started filming it. Um, it's also a reason why there are relatively few kills in the movie's first act, because all of those were in the police officer subplot and not in the college campus subplot, which we'll talk about as well. But basically, in parallel with this, Jamie Lee Curtis, who is coming off like a career, you know, she's relatively strong in her career at this point. She did True Lies, I think, three years before that. You know, True Lies was a biggish hit for James Cameron. It made a bit of money. It wasn't the biggest movie in the history of the world like T2 had been. But like she had a bit of kind of momentum in the industry. She approached Deborah Hill and John Carpenter and said, you know what, we should get together and we should do a Halloween movie as three of us. So they go to Dimension Films. They meet with Bob Weinstein. They apparently meet with Bob Weinstein three days before screen premieres. And they say, look, how would you like the original genius or the original like, people behind the first Halloween movie come back, put that on a poster, sell it as a movie? Weinstein apparently agrees to this. How endeavor John Carpenter, as we've talked about on this podcast, has a bit of a, at times can seem quite trollish. He said, yeah, I'll happily direct and co-write this movie. But you know what? I feel like I haven't been properly compensated for the work that I've done on the Halloween franchise. <laughs> so if you want me to direct this movie, you're going to have to pay me $10 million. <laughs> At which point Bob Weinstein goes, yeah, no, we're, we're okay. We're we'll, 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 <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll continue on. I think, I think we could do this without you. At which point Deborah Hill also drops out as well. Good. Curtis, Curtis has said herself, um, like doing press for the Gordon Green Halloweens, now, to this day, I regret that I didn't say to everyone, if Deborah Hill's not the one producing this movie, I'm not doing it. But what ended up happening was she wasn't part of it. John wasn't part of it, and I was still part of it, and it was a machine going down the road. I was excited about it, and honestly, I was going to get paid well. I hadn't made any money on the Halloween franchise at all. I mean, really, in all those years, I hadn't really made any movies. It just gave me a lot of fame. And now I was going to get a paycheck. Um, so basically, she decided that she was on board. Now, the other big elephant in the room is that as H2O is coming out, Scream has hit. That is the big, that is the moment that defines that's, the gap between. That's very surprising to me. What? Kind of that, 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 because this feels very informed by Scream. Yes. Yeah. Like, like the. Well, yeah. Yeah. It, it, everything from like the poster to like the way the film looks and yeah. everything. Uh, yeah. The score, Marco Beltrami. Well, that's probably where the next two years come in. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, okay. That's that's what happens like three days after that meeting with Weinstein where Carpenter's like, I want $10 million and Weinstein's like, we'll call you. <laughs> uh, is Scream is released and it is a massive hit for Dimension. And so naturally, they go to uh, Kevin Williamson, the writer of Scream, the guy responsible for their biggest horror hit, reviving the franchise horror boom. And I guess actually this is a good thing to ask like Scott. How do you feel about the post-Scream slasher boom? The, like, the late 90s. The, like, Scream revives this genre that was seen as dead or dying. Do you have, like, an opinion of that era? Do you have any preferences? Do you think it's overrated, underrated? Do a reappraisal? How would, what's your opinion of it? When I was a kid, it was sort of like, you know, I was, you know, I was in the, you know, I was in the know. I was reading my entertainment weekly and premiere and all that jazz. But, yeah, I was sort of rolling my eyes at that a little bit after the fact. I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, I know what you did last summer is a good movie or disturbing behavior is a good movie or even even the faculty is, is more fun in concept than in execution. I just watched it last week on the Criterion channel just out of curiosity. 
Um, that being said, as a moment in time, I'm now a little nostalgic for the notion of these films being made with today's kid stars for today's kid audiences, rather than you know what we get today, which is where the executives run around and wonder, why don't kids want to watch 89-year-old Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones again? We're doomed! Um, and, you know, what's sad, I think, is that in the whole, you know, in the terms of the discourse of why do big, a lot of movies look bad in terms visually, you know, you watch a lot of these old slasher pictures and these are cheap films that are, you know, yeah. I know what you did last summer, not a good movie, but it looks nice. You know, I still thought you did last summer looks really snazzy yeah. as just a piece of visual entertainment. And there is a certain amount of care and, and expertise in something like the faculty or, or, you know, urban legend that we used to take for granted as just what we got at a studio level. As far as my personal preferences, I like urban legend just because I think it's fun. And if I may be, if I may be lechy as a 43 year old guy, the cast is incredibly odd. That being said, I, I don't have any strong feelings about the films individually. Although, in, again, in retrospect, it was nice to have sort of a slew of big slasher films that were made for today's kids featuring actors that were known by today's kids rather than being force-fed nostalgia. Now, of course, we're being force-fed nostalgia and you have films like Fear Street, which on its face is good or enjoyable, but it's like, Today, you know, it's this weird thing where it's like it's nostalgic for Fear Street, but it's also nostalgic for the first Scream, which was 30 years ago. Yeah. That's not, yeah, 30 years ago. Jesus. 30 ish years ago. Yep. Make us all yeah. feel old. 27 years. Um, and it's, 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 it's this weird skewed nostalgia of nostalgia because, of course, Scream was, you know, was kind of banking on nostalgia for 80 slasher pictures. Yeah, and I even absolutely. remember seeing the first Scream on opening weekend in a very empty theater, because as you remember, it did not have a huge opening weekend. And it was kind of weird seeing a new, bigger budget, splashy slasher film that reminded me of the stuff that I was watching on syndicated television when I was a kid. Yes. I mean, it is, is Andrew has noted that we, we like lists on this podcast. I did compile a quick list of like just the golden age of this kind of slasher renaissance, the three years following the release of Scream in December 1996, right? So you get, and it's amazing, that they happen almost instantly. As soon as Hollywood realizes there's gold in them, their hills, they start cashing that check. So you have Scream, which is released in December 1996. You have I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, again, written by Kevin Williamson, turned around incredibly quickly for Halloween 1997. Scream 2, again, another screenplay turned around incredibly quickly for December 1997. Which is inexplicably a masterpiece, but I digress. Yes, yes, Scream <laughs> 2 is, is phenomenal. Um, Halloween H2O, this movie arrives in August 1998. We'll talk about that. Urban Legend in September 1998, Bride of Chucky, October 1998, The Faculty, November 1998, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, November 1998, Idle Hands, 1999, Lover's Lane slash I'm Still Waiting For You, February 2000, Scream 3, February 2000, Cut, which is the only international example of this trend. Like, it's the Australian slasher movie starring Kylie, releases February 2000. Final Destination comes out in March 2000. Terry Falls, perhaps due to a reappraisal for My Money, the secret masterpiece of the set, July 2000. Scary Movie arrives in July 2000 and kind of kills the franchise, kills the boom. And then you have Urban Legend Final Cut, September 2000, rings the death knell. Worth noting because it's directed by John Ottman, who is technically credited for the score of this movie, 
which I'm sure we will talk about in a moment. Uh, but Joey, what about yourself? You're obviously a big fan of Scream. It's come up several times on the podcast. How do you feel about that wave of 90s meta slashers? Um, I mean, obviously, I love slashers. Slashers are my favorite. And I love a bunch of the ones that you mentioned. Um, I do think there is something to be said for how that just doesn't exist nowadays. The movies that are getting kids into theaters now are things like The Nun 2, which is absolute dross and shot like shit. You can't see most of it. You can't see most of what's happening. It's like, what's the point? I'm somebody who hated the Fear Street trilogy. I thought it didn't have an original idea on its head. I thought, in its head, excuse me, I thought, you You're know. You're right. <laughs> the, and, and, and what it did do, it didn't do very well. And the the needle drops were just infuriating. It was, you know, Marco Beltrami supposedly did the score. I didn't hear any Marco Beltrami. All I heard was needle drop, needle drop, needle drop. None of them made any sense. And again, as Scott said, like, they're not even really recognisable actors. I think there are a few good examples of modern slashers that are fun, like Happy Death Day and Freaky. I think they don't play really off nostalgia. They're trying to do something different. But even in the case of those movies, they do well because horror fans get invested in them and spread the word. They're not necessarily having like a huge box office moment. That's reserved for stuff like Saw X. Do you know what I mean? Um, but, you know... Or The Exorcist uh, Believer, Believer, which I just yeah. saw that joke on Twitter that somebody said the best the best um, idea they could come up with was two girls. Well, it's a sequel. you got to escalate the stakes. <laughs> yeah, not, not one girl, two. <laughs> what, what's, what's bigger than one possession? Two. <laughs> I've seen that on Tuesday and uh, I finally got into The Exorcist television show and I realized in terms of expectations i'm making a terrible mistake because the show is actually pretty good so far i've i've heard it's good i haven't seen it myself because i'm not a huge exorcist person i'm not excited am I. i'm not excited for that sequel you're probably the first person i've ever spoken to who isn't a huge exorcist fan last time i watched it i fell asleep and i slept through like, i prefer the omen yes i prefer the omen too and i will it, that's like my husband's one of my husband's favorite horror films he still thinks it's terrifying and for some reason it's not held in as high regard but yeah, when I see that trailer for Exorcist Believer, I'm just like, there's nothing there to really hook. Me. Yeah, to really hook me in. I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like I've seen it all before. And it, it, it is an interesting time, definitely, because a lot of stuff is playing off nostalgia. And then anything that does try to do something different, it tends to do well because of streaming, because hardcore horror fans will just watch everything and then they'll tell each other, watch this. You have to watch this. But yeah. And again, looking back on a lot of those 90s slashers, they're not great. Scream is definitely, by and away, like the the best one by far. And it's not even close. Um, but I do think it's really interesting how Scream informs this movie and how it kind of tries to ape Scream in a lot of ways and it just doesn't work. Because there's only one Scream. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is just very quickly to note the point you made about like the wave of modern slashers where it feels like in the 70s you have the straightforward slashers in the 90s, you have this wave of meta slashers where characters have watched slasher movies and are commenting on slasher movies and are discussing the tropes of slasher movies. Yes. It's kind of interesting that you now have like that meta-ness bounced back on itself where you have a wave of slasher movies like, I'm going to discount Fear Street here, for example, because that's a high concept thing. But then like say Totally Killer, which is on mm. Amazon, which is Back to the Future, but a slasher. Or Happy Death Day, which is Groundhog Day. But a slasher. But a slasher. Yeah. You have like this wave of what if we combine Freaky, which is Freaky Friday, but also a slasher. <laughs> like it, it's kind of interesting how the genre, perhaps because it's aimed at young people, seems to have this postmodern bent that other genres don't really have. 
Um, and I guess it's kind of interesting with H2O to see that reflected back on itself. Because obviously, Halloween is a huge influence on Scream. That's the movie that they're watching in Scream when they lay down the rules of the horror movie. And obviously, that is paid off back here as well, because the characters are watching Scream 2 in Halloween H2O. And you have moments like the, um, there's a moment here where the characters say, get to the Becker house, which is a reference to Drew Barrymore's Casey Becker character, because in Scream you had a line, get to the, be uh, was it like Blankenshek? The Mackenzie's. The Mackenzie's, yeah, that's what it is, that's, the, the next door. Because that's what she says in Halloween. It's the yeah, same line, basically. Yeah. Where it all feels kind of reflected. And like, look, Andrew mentioned this is Scream inflected. It absolutely, 110% is Scream inflected. That's very much the influence of the Weinstein Company. They go to Kevin Williamson, the writer of Scream. Because for a second there, for a moment there, I thought you were saying it was an absolute coincidence. It's like, just as this was coming. <laughs> um, uh, no. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, like, it, that's, Bob Weinstein leaves that meeting with, like, John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, and Jamie Lee Curtis and looks at the test screening numbers for Scream. And then just looks up and says, I have an idea here. Okay. But like, you can tell just looking at it, like, I mean, even discounting like Kevin Williamson, who we'll talk about, like it's edited by Patrick Lovesier, who's the guy who edited Scream, who edited Scream 2. Um, he's like Wes Craven's go-to guy. Uh, the soundtrack, as we mentioned, it's credited to John Altman, but very famously in test screenings, they weren't happy with how the soundtrack sounded. And they only had five days to put together a final cut of the movie. So they basically stitched together a score from Marco Beltrami's scores for Scream, Scream 2, and Mimic. This is very much from the Weinstein Company's point of view. Can we Screamify this Halloween franchise? And then there's the Kevin Williamson of it all, where they go to him and they say, look, Kevin, we know that you've written Scream. You've written Scream 2 for us. You've written I Know What You Did Last Summer. Your plate is maybe a little bit full. And you've just launched the TV show Dawson's Creek. <laughs> Would you be able to write the Halloween sequel for us? And Williamson says, no, I'm too busy. But here is a one page document of what I would do if I were writing a Halloween sequel. And again, they pass that on to the screenwriter. The screenwriter takes that and reworks his script around it. And very famously, like three weeks before they're due to begin production, Jamie Lee Curtis herself meets with Williamson and is like, look, we're having some difficulty with the script. Can you rewrite that from, can you just do a polish on it? Uh, and we already, we've got the cast, we've got the locations, we know the basic structure of the film, just come in and do a polish, and Williamson does. So this ends up being a movie that's rewritten by Williamson. The famous story, I believe, is that off the record, never confirmed, the Weinsteins basically convinced him to finally do the polish on this by agreeing to let him write and direct his, like, passion project, Killing Miss Tingle, which was obviously renamed Teaching Miss Tingle yeah. in the wake of the Columbine Massacre starring Katie Holmes and Helen Mirren. Um, all right, then. So, look, Scott, do you remember the first time you saw Halloween H2O? Did you see it on release? Did you see it in hindsight? I saw it opening morning because it opened on a Wednesday in the middle of the summer in August. It was a Wednesday to Sunday opening in North America. And I saw it on Wednesday morning with a friend of mine. And I, my, my initial thoughts were, this is because it's such a low body count. Oh. This is actually really scary because there's a lot of mm. scenes of, you know, suspense sequences, but I don't know if someone's going to get killed in this scene. Ergo, for me, it was a lot more tense and suspenseful 
than a more conventional structure where you have a kill at, you know, whenever there's the Every music comes up, someone's going to get killed. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember being more into it than I expected to because of that. That, you know, as you said, you know, barely by accident, there is a very low body count in this picture. I think as a result, A, that feels more in tune to the, you know, the original Halloween, which only had like, I think, four on-screen killings. And if you don't find people, one, two, Five, you get a sister, whatever. Yeah. Um, um, and also, you know, because it's it's far more of a suspense thriller with a little bit of slasher violence as opposed to a full on, you know, somebody dies every seven minutes slasher picture. And that's fine too on its own merits, but that's, I think, what kind of sets this apart from some of the other Halloween sequels is that it feels more like an old school thriller. Mm. Um, and they linger as well. Yeah, they do. What was that? And they, they, they linger, linger on some of the kills like quite effectively, where you 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 really feel the 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 terror of it more than a than a than a quick kind of like camera pan that person is dead and then someone is running away. Next, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it, yeah the big the big kills that are drawn out are the the one of the two high school college friends get killed. Yes, and but that's almost like one hour into the movie, give or take. Terrifying. Um, yeah. So. No, it does the work in a way that I'm, you know, obviously Jimmy Lee Curtis is very good. And I like that the film balances in a way that I think the Blue Mouse ones don't. You know, her being realistically screwed up by the events of this picture, but also not being sort of a caricature of what trauma and or, you know, grief and or PTSD in movie terms often looks like. You know, she is living a relatively normal life. She has a relatively normal day-to-day existence she is very much coping with what happened and making some mistakes because of that but in a way it's a far more aspirational optimistic portrait than what we saw in the blue mouse version where she's basically those five minutes of running from michael myers in 1978 basically wrecked her entire life and and this is my own personal opinion is i i do take slight issue with when the horror franchise tries, you know, where the, in the end of the movie, she's in an insane asylum or the end, you know, the beginning of the next movie, you know, she went lunatic and dies. Like, what, what exactly are you telling people here? That they have to be defined by the momentary violence in their life? Um, and that's getting a bit on my soapbox. That's for another day. But one of the things I do like about this film is that she is clearly affected by what happened. But she, you know, it's not necessarily the defining moment of her life. Yeah. Until because of the incidents of this film, it kind of becomes that temporarily. Uh, we should know a couple of things to notice that note there in what you said. First of which is this was an August release. Uh, apparently, this tested so well that they moved it up. Huh. Uh, previously, the Halloween movies had, as you might expect, all opened in October, with the exception of Halloween 6, which opened on the 29th of September, the first weekend of October. <laughs> um, but basically, this was moved back to August. As will be a recurring theme, I'm sure we'll talk about it next week more when we talk about Halloween Resurrection. The Weinstein Company kind of notices everything that worked about H2O and doubles down on it for Resurrection. So Resurrection somehow becomes a July release, which is maybe one of the many miscalculations uh, with that movie. You also mentioned the suspense direction of this. This is also notably directed by Steve Miner, um, who, you know, famously famous horror slasher director, directed Is It Friday the 13th Part 2, Part 3, and Part 4, I believe, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, he also directed House. I don't think he directed House, The Second Story. I just need to drop that title in there, one of the great movie titles. Uh, but he had worked with Williamson on Dawson's Creek. 
That is kind of how he was recommended. And he had also, I believe, worked with uh, J.B. Lee Curtis on a previous movie as well. So he kind of had an established relationship with her. Uh, Forever Young is the movie that he directed starring Jamie Lee Curtis. So Dawson's Creek is that horror TV series where, like, no matter how old they get, they can't leave high school. Or, <laughs> They're still teenagers. Uh, they will be teenagers yeah. forever at the age of 45. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and obviously this movie is heavily, heavily influenced by that. They do a good job of bringing in teenagers. I'm sure we'll talk about the spore zone. But yes, let's talk. Let's ask the three questions before we jump into the spore zone to get us started. So, Joey, do you think Halloween H2O 20 years later belongs on a list of either the 250 greatest movies or the 100 worst movies ever made? No, neither. How does it fit in the franchise for you? It's up there because I don't hate it. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, it's 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 up there. But I gotta I disagree about the the treatment of Laurie Strode. I think that's done much better in the Bloomhouse movies. But that might be speaking from my position as a recovering alcoholic. I think the way they do that in H two O is is mishandled. And I also think there's a lot of history histrionics in H two O that I don't like. There's also a very strange line about someone being a methadone addict which uh, doesn't make sense because... Her former husband? Is that who it was? I couldn't remember who it was. Yeah. I just had methadone addict, but that doesn't make sense because methadone is something you use to get off heroin. So I'm like, I don't know if whoever wrote this got mixed up or just kind of threw that in there as a weird... But it's also something very strange that an, another addict would say about someone else. So that... But having said that, David Gordon Green had three movies to get all that out there and maybe that's why I feel like it works better for me whereas with this one it does feel a little bit rushed um but it's look it's definitely better than four or five and six I'd put it above three too obviously because I'm not fond of three um uh, don't worry Scott this is a divisive issue on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> look everyone else in the world loves three apart from me I've accepted that um but yeah season of the witch is one of those movies that yes i enjoy it but i think it's gone from being underrated to overrated see i i this is the thing i <laughs> Probably, agree with you yeah. i think i think like when i first saw it i was like that was fine and then it started to irritate me how much everyone was treating it like a masterpiece although as we've discussed before there are people who think four or five and six are masterpieces so you know more power to them but i don't think it's one of the 250 best i don't think it's one of the 100 worst either no way not even in in terms of horror in either case and Scott, what about yourself? Do you think this movie belongs on either of those two lists? Oh, God, no. And that's not like a criticism. It's just it's a solid three-star you know, yeah. slasher thriller. There are too yeah. many movies. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are more than 350 movies. Yeah. Um, but Scott, how would this rank in the franchise for you? How, like, how do you position this in terms of like the Halloween franchise as well? I don't think I've ever done a ranking offhand. Ooh, okay. Uh, let me think. Obviously, the first one's the best. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's true. Honestly, this might be, with the caveat that I don't love a lot of the other ones. I yeah, mean, see, I don't either. Shit. Mm. I mean, I like Halloween Ends more than most people. I <laughs> That's love, the one of the blue mushrooms that I really like. Love it. Can't wait till Andrew gets to it. I'm so excited <laughs> for him. <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Let's say Halloween, Halloween Ends, Halloween H2O, Season of the Wish, and I guess Halloween 2 because it's weird and interesting that zombie, you know, full zombie. Uh, and the rest of them, I don't care. <laughs> Into a pumpkin grinder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Left to rot. <laughs> and Andrew, how about yourself? Do you think this belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies, 100 worst movies? And how are you feeling? We're now more than halfway through the Halloween right. franchise. How are you feeling, Andrew? 
I canonically haven't watched um, Zombie uh, <laughs> Rob Zombie's, Zombie's Halloween. Halloween. Rob Zombie's yeah. Halloween. We, we may have recorded out of sequence. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, it they have um, a double bill. <laughs> may have a mistake. A mistake that I recognize hopefully, in hindsight. No. <laughs> hopefully, by the time we get to like Halloween ends, it'll be the last movie that I've seen and the last one yes. that we're recording. Okay, good. Um, and the last one that you will ever have to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, 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 know, I imagine I they'll make more. Um, but um, yes, yeah. yeah, because the like the the, the, the for, for for the first person to come up with it is like there's no movie called Halloween. <laughs> there should be. And, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um, it 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 makes sense that they'll keep making them. Um, there are, by the way, now a lot of movies that are called Halloween. And then something, something, um, as in, if you were to look up, say, on yeah. Amazon. <laughs> Words or numbers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, um, I would put this, <laughs> I think I'd be similar to Scott. I haven't seen ends, but I, I'd, uh, so it would be probably two on on my list. I'm, I, 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 Ahead of three, interesting. I, I do really like Season of the Witch, though. I just, I, I, I just thought, thought this was a lot of fun. As a movie, like I, I thought it was thrilling. I thought the uh, cast was quite good. Even like like LL, LL Cool J, I don't think he, he's like uh, an especially kind of like a uh, great actor. Like, or uh, but but but, oh. I, but no, no, I think he's perfect in this. I I I I think the the, the you you need to watch more NCIS LA, Andrew. Clearly, oh, you need to watch Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> exactly. No, sorry, I don't know why I'm being needlessly harsh to LL Cool J. <laughs> I think he, he the, what he's required to do in this movie he does very well. And and yeah, uh, he, yeah, he has great presence. He has a great presence on screen, and he's very natural. Not to spoil discussions we're going to have, but I feel like if you're going to take an, a rapper turned actor to task, this is maybe not the movie to play that card yeah, on. Yeah, hold off. <laughs> oh, I, I would maybe maybe take that card and just slide it back a little bit and hold on to it well, for a little while longer. We've al- we've already we have said that even though. <laughs> I thought you were having a more holistic comparison. Oh wait, no, no, no! I know what no, you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> like very specifically. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we've all. I'm sorry, we've already stated. I haven't seen it yet, but but we're we're going to assume until I have seen it that Resurrections will be my favorite movie, <laughs> and that I'll defend it to the hilt. And um, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 I casually mentioned some detail about that, and Andrew turned to me and said, "That's going to be my favorite Halloween, right?" <laughs> and now, canonically, it is Andrew's favorite Halloween. No, um, um, but oh. yeah. So I I I'd, I'd probably put this two or three um, uh, behind three, right. and obviously um, Halloween, and then um, you roughly know how I feel about the other ones. I think, um, but like six five. Two four maybe. <laughs> oh, okay, this is the order. <laughs> or, or, <laughs> or five six two four. Um, yeah. <laughs> that is Andrew's alarm code, by the way, in case you're trying to get into his house. Um, but yeah, I, I, for myself, no, I don't think this belongs on either list. I uh, also can't remember the <laughs> <laughs> Fair I, enough. Uh, fair enough. I, uh, I do think this is much better than four, five, or six. I think this is a functional movie, which gives it an advantage over like five and six, definitely. I also think it's like fun, which gives it an advantage over four. Um, I, think it has issues. I, I, I think I'm maybe more cynical about this than Scott or Andrew. I think I'm more Team Joey on this one. Where I think it has some serious tonal issues. Yes. Where I'm not entirely sure whether it wants to be 
that serious study of trauma that kind of Scott mentions, or it wants to be a fun postmodern like 90 slasher movie that you're watching with popcorn and kind of cheering. And I feel like it struggles to pick a lane where kind of one scene you're like, yeah, this is a really great performance from Jamie Lee Curtis and it's really delving into the consequences of this. And then the next scene you're like, no, 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 we're, we're back to this is a fun set piece like from a standard slasher movie that's done Are... self-aware and postmodernly. Sorry, Andrew. I'd agree that that is wild in terms of like just being like jarring for um, yeah. a tone, but I but I think it it achieves both things. I certainly think it achieves the 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 trauma piece. I'm I'm, I'm really kind of invested in her um, emotionally, and it's not just kind of like a silly sort of a you know running away from. It's it's not Scooby Doo, you know. Um, yeah. And and it means a lot, like how 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 she's going to get on, and how the other uh, characters, um, really, and 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 I, I I I feel like it achieves that, and it is kind of um, uh, like ever so slightly silly and screwball as well, um, but I I I like I I I don't I I suppose you could say that they undermine each other in the sense that you want it to be coherent, but I also think. Um, you could have an entire movie like that and it would just kind of like bum you out or an entire movie the other way and, and you could feel <laughs> that, that it doesn't really um, kind of treat its um, material seriously I guess I've, I feel like the tone of balance here is okay right? No? Well I mean I, I think this is a fundamental difference between you and me which maybe will explain if we have hypothetically different opinions about the Rob Zombie movies where like I feel like you know those are movies that I think commit wholeheartedly to their tone. You admire their commitment, yeah. Yes, and are uncompromising in what they are, whereas this feels... Compromise is a wrong word because it's committed to both of the things it's doing, yeah. but maybe a bit schizoid is probably well, how I would yeah, describe I, it. I think it's tonally, yeah. I prefer like a movie where I, where I can kind of laugh and cry and kind of have, have lots of different like feelings about it like <laughs> through, throughout the runtime of the movie and not a movie where it's like twisted. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is so messed up, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, but anyway. Thank you, Andrew, because I'm a mentally 15-year-old <laughs> yeah. shredding an electric guitar. <laughs> I just watch movies that are dark <laughs> yeah. and itchy. Like the Halloween uh, 6 score. <laughs> <Turner>. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I would argue to, and again, I don't want to defend. I mean, it's, again, it's a three-star picture. I, I don't think it's any kind of masterpiece here, but I do think there is value in a popcorn picture that does, nonetheless, contain interesting subtext or interesting character portraits without necessarily having to be holistically about its subject. You know, that particular subject matter. So the the. the, the you know, for example, you know, Laurie Stroh's trauma doesn't pervade every moment of the picture. It's there when it's important for the story they're telling. And when it's not, then, you know, that's fine. I do believe that, you know, and this is, I do miss that kind of, you know, 80s and 90s thing where, you know, even a schlocky horror film could be, could have stuff of interest going on without that being the dominating factor. You know, Candyman 3 is a terrible picture, don't get me wrong. But I think it's hilarious that that film is more open and honest about institutional police racism than most quote-unquote serious dramas that we get these days. Because back in the day when movies were cheaper and didn't have to play to all quadrants, you know, they could be about stuff like that without being about it in a yellow highlighter. 
Um, and I think to a certain extent that might be, for me at least, a difference between this Halloween, you know, this Laurie Strode is coping versus the Blumhouse Laurie Strode is coping. Where to this, it's it's just a, an int- a, a worthwhile and plausible authentic character detail that informs your character. While in the Blumhouse version, it seems to be, you know, it pervades, it's the entire movie to a certain extent. Although, again, I still think one issue I have with the Blue, first Blumhouse is that, first of all, I think I saw the film before the publicity tour began. And I'm half convinced that they made up the whole it's about generational trauma thing on the spot while they're promoting it in Venice. But I digress. Because um, it's there, but it's not... And the fact that they reshot the entire ending, like, they didn't know going into this this is going to have all three Strode sisters or three Strode people teaming up to take out Michael Myers. What the fuck kind of movie do they think they were making? <laughs> I, I mean, we, we will talk about it, but it does also feel like it's a movie about we really like The Force Awakens and that made like $2.5 billion. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's abs- oh, yeah. It's a Force Awakens yeah. movie, just like Terminator yeah. Dark Fate and, you know, in, you know, Independence Resurgence, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's one that does the thing that annoys me about Rise of Skywalker and movies that came after that, in which it pushed in. It says, look at this new, interesting young cast. Never mind. Fuck them. Your grandpa's heroes are still the best. Uh, and that's why I didn't like Top Gun Maverick the first time I saw it. Because to me, it played like that kind of sequel. Oh, we, we've talked about that. Wow. And that, yeah, that is. Well, that, like that is 100% what the point of Top Gun is. But also it's class, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It works better in a vacuum yeah. where it's like, okay, for the you know Tom Cruise, this makes sense. Yeah, the idea that Hollywood has so badly failed to make new movie stars over the last fifteen years, twenty years, that Tom Cruise still has to come off the bench and save the fucking day. Yeah, you have to kind of give it to him. Though. Yeah, like Miles Teller and Glenn Powell, you're never going to yeah. be movie stars. Yeah, that's yeah. Like, get out of the you, way. You don't look Aww. at Tom Cruise doing that and think like, oh, that's really sad, Tom. That that you still think you can, you know? It, 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 you look at it and you're like, oh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I was still recovering from the scars of the rise of Skywalker. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Scott, to just uh, when we covered that in the podcast, that was kind of close to my position on it, which is why it was no fun Mr. Grinch man on that podcast. <laughs> um, all our, the other three panelists were like, this movie rocks. Ooh. Yeah. And I was like, does it, 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 it looks really great, but I have some issues. And they're like, boo. <laughs> uh, but okay. Joey, second question. Mm. Is this on your own personal 250 favorite movies? Sadly not. I mean, we know by now my 250 is mostly made up of horror movies. So uh, I will say, though, shocking, all three of the David Gordon Green movies are on there. Ooh, interesting. I okay, that's... love those fucking wow. movies. Listeners cannot see Scott's face. I, love, Scott's... The, I love them. I think they're, I think they're brilliant. And I, I think the worst part about the rise And is... the two zombies, right? I don't know about the two zombies. I agree with Scott, and I think this kind of came up when we talked about it before as well, and it will come up again when we do too. They're interesting for what they're trying to do. They're not necessarily successful, but I do absolutely commend Rob Zombie for trying to do his own thing. And in fact, it's when he stops doing it in the first one that it all falls off, goes off the rails. Because you're yes. like, yeah. you're like, you're not going to be able to do Carpenter. I'm sorry. Yeah. Just do your own thing. Nobody, yeah. Even yeah. if it is Hillbilly, Hillbilly looks. that's fine. Do that. Uh, but no, would not be on my personal 250. I don't, I don't hate it. But as Scott has correctly said, it's a three-star movie at best. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Scott, I assume the same answer for you, despite remembering oh, yeah. seeing it on that August morning. No, no, it's yeah. fine. It's a B. It's a B. I, I right. think, you know. 
the the highest compliment I can give it is A. I think it's a Halloween movie that actually periodically gave me the heebie-jeebies because of the way it's structured and because mm. there are so many false alarms. I never know if an actual character that I like is in peril. And that's part of how suspense is supposed to work. And I will say, I think, or at least I enjoy it more than a lot of the post-scream horror films, um, for better or worse. I mean, we will we will inevitably talk about this, but this is but the first... better than Valentine. It is, definitely. That's having a reappraisal <laughs> as well. Completely undeserved. They all, they all get reappraisals now because you have gen- generational nostalgia. It's so well, undeserved. Valentine's one of the end. Of, that's like 2001. That's the David Boreanaz one, it right? Is, Am I yeah. correct? And yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love the sigh of resignation. Remember when David Boreanaz was almost a thing? Um, sorry, well, I sorry, imagine sorry. he is so rich from television right now. Has to be. Yeah. Has um, to yeah. Be. He could yeah. like, buy a small country. Because <laughs> yeah. he went from uh, seven years in Buffy Angel. Yeah. Went to eight years. Sorry. Because mm. eight, two. Yeah. And then both, he had yeah. 12 years of Bones. Yeah. We condemn Bones. And now he's on like season six of Seals or whatever. Yeah. And he's always the same. Yeah. Like he, <laughs> he's, no, he's... like he's, he's lovely to look at, whatever. I loved him as Angel, obviously, growing up. Everyone did, although not as much as Spike. But he's, he's very, there's no variation to his performances. Like he's not a particularly gifted actor. It's just always kind of David Boreanaz. <laughs> Which I guess that's how he made his money. Fair play. Yeah. Good for you. No bones about it, I guess. No bones. Um, Make no bones. <laughs> but um, <laughs> sorry, I, it is worth noting. We, we, obviously, we talked about the postmodernism of it, but this this feels like the first like post Carpenter involvement sequel. So the first one since the first three. That feels like it's actually trying to do what Carpenter did. Yeah. Like it feels like it's trying to direct a movie the same way that John Carpenter did, and that's obvious from like the opening shot of the carving of the pumpkin Mm. it doesn't go back to the full shot of like one two and three the opening sequence with a pumpkin being carved but the opening shot is a pumpkin being carved which is okay you're in safe hands the use of suspense the false scares the slow build-up the fact that there's no murder until you get into the third act that's all carpenter stuff and that's stuff that four five and six really discarded because as you said they went down the path of one kill every seven minutes it is interesting that like yeah this, this does feel in its own weird way as much as it's a wave two of two as well, yeah, pretty much two. Yeah, that's fair too. And that was Carpenter's own thing. Carpenter, well, Carpenter added those early kills as well. We talked about yeah. this. Carpenter watched the cut of the movie and was like, "Need more kills." <laughs> um, we'll talk about that when we get into Halloween Resurrection, directed by Halloween 2's Rick Rosenthal. But Andrew, what about yourself? Um, would this be on your own personal two hundred and fifty films? Your own two hundred and fifty favorite movies? Uh, no, no, I wouldn't. I, 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 I wouldn't put it up there. I I think I spoke about liking three enough where I'd consider it. I like this a lot, but I wouldn't put it on kind of like my top movies. Favorites. It's great. Like, it's good. Sorry. Maybe maybe great is a bit too fulsome. But um, I, I no, don't, I, don't, 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 don't take it back. Go strong. <laughs> no, like I, 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 I think it works really well. I think it, it's, um, it, it's, it's terrifying. I think it's got some great gore. I think it's, it's, it's fantastic to see Jamie Lee Curtis back, and I think the movie serves her as a character really well. And uh, and you've got so many small little kind of like performances to, to like, like to Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in there. You've um, yeah, oh yeah, god. Yeah. He's he's again he's he's doing the Drew Barrymore thing as much as like you can compare him to Drew Barrymore where he gets the and yeah. in the opening credits and he appears in the opening sequence you know I I couldn't believe this was after Third Rock I wrote down what it's third season yeah, yeah I, I had season. to look it up because he is not convincing as a ruffian 
like at all. You just he's so he's so baby faced and cute, and then he's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna steal the beer," and it's like, "Are you? What are, <laughs> you he's, little cutie?" Your first beer theft. He's convincing <laughs> as a as somebody who's pretending to be a a, a ruffian because the character I think them, themselves point. is scared and yeah, and he still is. Yeah. That's a, yeah. <laughs> well, he's uh, another one where there's not a lot of variation in the performance no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what he does he does pretty well and but... that's that's all he does <laughs> um, um I mean, and, and I, for myself oh, sorry. I, no but but i i i i think as well um it's nice to see and i think it's got more to do as you say with scream than it does to do with halloween it's not like halloween six is going to tell them let's really invest in this let's like make a movie that looks um looks good has has uh lots of kind of like hot um young uh uh, people in it that uh, you know the kids are going to go crazy for and like this is going to be a huge movie you know halloween 6 doesn't kind of make that movie and scream i guess does um so it's uh, it's great to see them investing in it this isn't a throwaway um, Halloween movie, like so many of the others seem like. But for, uh, back yes, from like yeah. two, two, four, five, and six, I think. For, like, obviously, people involved in a the movie, they probably care about it to an extent, but it doesn't feel like they do. And you wonder, do they really? And are people kind of coming in at a certain point and it's like, hold this for a second, you know? <laughs> Gotta get this in cinemas for Halloween. Um, uh, you want to be in the scene? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we talked about yeah the writer for Halloween Six being chosen by the fact that he had printed a Bible. Yeah, for well, the series. so that's and, we won't get yeah. into the fanboy side of that again. That's it's a huge relief to not be watching <laughs> one of those movies. Uh, but we uh, and it is worth noting again that this movie wipes four, five, and six from continuity. Woo! Interesting. Interestingly, not originally part of the plan. The original plan was going to include a classroom presentation. That would explain the events of four, five, and six for the audience at home. Oh my god! But apparently, apparently the Weinstein's um, and like I believe the directors minor were like, no, just no. And it's fascinating because you can see kind of traces why, of that. Why? Why do you say that though? In, in, why do you say what? Well, is it is it not possible that as in I know that according to four, um, she died, right? Yes, and that is but in I, the like will it's. Okay, we're just pausing to mention that that's an example of the because those changes were made late in the script. The opening credit sequence includes a press clipping about her faking her death in a car crash, which is how she supposedly died in four. Yeah. So like that gives you a sense of how late that stuff was taken out. But sorry, Andy. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, that that is what 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 that was my impression of the movie is that the, this is in the same universe as four, five, and six. We thought she had died, but actually she hadn't. She had just faked her death. In order to give the impression to Mike Myers um, that she was dead, and but yeah, the the famous Canadian comedian, yeah, yeah he does definitely <laughs> keep up with the newspapers. I can, you know, <laughs> when he's living under Haddonfield. She's dead, groovy, baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, baby. <laughs> but, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis apparently wanted a scene where after she saw Michael Myers in like a window, she'd turn around and see Mike Myers, the comedian, so, and he so, was like, no, Aww, no, that's the- why so, does he keep saying uh, no? Uh, uh, so, so my brother's an axe murderer. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, God. Yeah. No, to my knowledge, this was the first time that we had had a franchise sequel that basically retconned other sequels out of existence. Yeah, I think and you're right. Now, I think you're right. And honestly, I just in principle, I don't like that. 
Aww. I mean, it, it was now, you know, once do it fine, whatever it was like 98 and, you know, but I feel that, again, it sort of gives it a sort of fanboy entitlement where it's yeah. like you only count the ones that the real fans like. And yet when you look at the successful franchises of the last decade or so, the MCU, Fast and Furious, Saw, you know, yes. those are the ones that like everything counts. I was I was going to say like Saul is the one that comes to mind where it would be so easy for somebody to do a sequel like this to Saul and just erase Saul three and pretend John Kramer is still alive. But for seven movies, yeah, yeah for seven movies they've been like, no, he's dead. But also <laughs> Tobin Bell's in the movie. And now Sorry, they've Scott. gone, now they've gone back in time, but they both look twenty years older, and we're just supposed well, to ignore it works that. For him, because he's supposed to be dying of cancer. He's so infirmed when uh, he's it like, doesn't quite work for her, but whatever. Oh, she is given a terrible wig, God bless her. Yes, like, that is a cro- that's the scariest thing in the movie. It, it actually is, which is sad. <laughs> it is. I mean, to to Andrew's point about the erasure of it, um, I suspect several factors at play here. The first, well, first of all, it is definitely erased because you have the police officer say nobody's heard from Michael Myers in 20 years. Um, and you have the idea that he's only coming now because like um, her son is 17 years old. Mike Myers has a little radar where he doesn't kill any children under the age of 17. Like there's the rest stop scene, which seems to prove that where it's like, if you're under 17, beep, 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 clear. Um, He'll only kill them if, if they're like, and it's different in different states, I think as well. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Well, I like when the first Gordon Green one came out and there was this whole online discourse about what it meant that Michael Myers didn't kill the baby. It's like, he didn't kill the baby because it's a mainstream popcorn entertainment. They want people to actually show up, you morons. But it was, hey, it <laughs> got even... complicated. It got even worse with Halloween Kills, where he kills that gay couple, and then suddenly it was Michael Myers is homophobic. It's like, <laughs> no, Michael Myers just kills indiscriminately. What I love about that... <laughs> Michael Myers scrolling on his phone going, what? what the fuck? Yeah, he's like, hey, I'm not homophobic. But I will say, in Halloween Ends, that snotty kid specifically says, Michael Myers kills kids. Or sorry, kills babysitters, not kids. There you go. Ah. <laughs> do, 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 do. I do. I'm now imagine that Michael Myers notes apology. By the way, but sorry. What I love about that the scene in Halloween uh, Kills, the tall guy that plays one of the gay couples. Do you remember his name? Yeah. Little John. Little John. I, I, I apologize. Yeah. The actor. The actor. Oh, <laughs> I don't remember the actor's name. Okay, that's sorry. fine. Whatever. But he has the coolest piece of trivia of recent years. He's the he was the guy that got steamrolled in the first Boston Powers movie. <gasps> which means he's the only person to be killed by Mike Myers and Michael Myers. Oh my God. That's amazing. Oh, amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and just again, there, just in terms, uh, sorry. We should say as well, there are also a ton of babies in um, the second Halloween. Halloween too. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And he doesn't kill any of them. Yeah. And one yeah. needs to um, be turned over. Remember one was on its side and it's like, turn yeah, that baby. They, they needed belly Turn time. it over. <laughs> we, we that baby can't that. breathe. <laughs> but, Anyway, sorry. So just just back to the point of the erasure, I do feel like that's Curtis is kind of pushing for that because it avoids the question of like, why didn't she care about Jamie Lloyd? Why doesn't she care about her daughter at all? Yeah. Um, Which is kind of the lingering question that you have to resolve if you bring those movies in. So I feel like Curtis also saying, no, 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 don't count. And as Scott said, there's definitely the fan service element of you can watch Halloween H2O having only seen the first Halloween and maybe Halloween 2. There were no other ones. Don't stress yourself out. You don't have to do a binge watch of the series to catch up with it. And for myself, no, this this would definitely not be on my own personal 250. Um, I think this is grand. I think it's fine. 
it's in the middle, the lower middle of my rankings. I think it's obviously better than four, five, and six. Um, I think it's better than the next one that's coming up. Um, and yeah, um, I think it's maybe on par with two. So yeah, that that's my own personal rankings. And then Joey, final question. If listeners have not seen Halloween H2O, would you recommend they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Yeah, absolutely. Like, as we've already said, it's an, it's an easy watch. It's a relatively fun watch. I think Michael Myers is finally scary again, which he hasn't been for three movies. So yeah, and I mean, it's also an interesting, as you've said, an interesting moment in time for horror. So absolutely, I would say watch it if you haven't watched it, especially if you're watching along with us, which one of my <laughs> friends has promised to do. <laughs> I'm sorry in advance yes, to Joey's friend, but I, the worst of it is mostly over. It's mostly over. over. <laughs> mostly over. Um, I'm in there. And, and Scott, obviously we're going to go into the spoiler zone in a moment, but like if listeners have not watched Halloween H2O, would you recommend they call it the podcast and stream it to a local device? or and just Yeah, it's really short. <laughs> it is. I mean, mm. you just you know, grab your iPad, go to the bathroom, drop a big one, and then it's over already. <laughs> We may be revealing H2 our age so. when we suggest, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we may, like, I mean, it's almost as short as the Nightmare Before Christmas, for God's sakes. And we're talking Mask of the Phantasm here. But no, no, jokes aside, no, it's a solid three-star horror picture. I think it's by default one of the better Halloween sequels. The caveat that there's some that, again, I, whatever. Um, but I think Curtis is very good. I think it works very well as doing, and it's probably the best final sequel that yes. we've gotten so far, if that makes yes. sense. Well, no, that's not true, because I like Halloween ends. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> I, I, I get the sense that you just like Halloween movies that suggest you don't have to watch any more Halloween movies. I feel like that's what gives it the extra bounce for you, Scott. <laughs> Is there the possibility? To a certain extent. Well, no. I, 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 you know, this was back in 1998. We thought, yeah. oh, this is a serious finale. This is, you know, I can't think of anything more satisfying than, oh, we may have just cut that out of sequence and that may be our opening up the spoiler zone. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, sorry. sorry. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So listeners, like after the spoiler sorry, zone, you will hear a five-year-old movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Literally, it turned 25 this year. I think, wait, no, um, wait, uh, shit. You know, you know. Okay, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> Andrew, would you recommend listeners all the podcasts and stream it to a little bit before somebody ruins it for them? Before somebody I won't it. ruin anything, did it? Dude. We, we, you don't know what we said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's been tough. No, um, no, it, it, I'm, I'm not overly concerned about that anyway. But, but yeah, no, I, 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 I think people ought to watch this movie if you like Halloween movies. Um, if you like Scream, this movie is scary. It's uh, funny, as we said. It's, it's got lots of great performances. It's um, I think it, it's 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 meaningful, like in a in a in a kind of a sad way. You, I I feel like you can really invest in the characters in it. There, ordinarily in one of these movies, there is one or many characters who you want to die. So. Um, uh, but it, but 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 in this, um, I I think with with pretty much no exception, there are there. I'm I'm trying to think of characters that I wanted to to eat it in this, and even like the the obvious one that I that I is like is not really one that I'm uh, looking out for. But I also yeah overly enthusiastic. I want everybody body to survive, so it makes it um, extra. 
kind of suspenseful. Yeah, I definitely recommend people watch it. How about you, Darren? Uh, yeah, I think it's highly enjoyable. I think it's very accessible. I think it's a movie you can watch if you haven't been watching along with us. If you've been taking a breather on 4, 5, and 6, you can jump back in with H2O and enjoy it on its own terms. With that in mind, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone! <laughs> okay, so what Scott actually said in that segment that we ended was... <laughs> Back in 1998, we thought, yeah. oh, this is a serious finale. This is, you know, I can't think of anything more satisfying than, oh, he ch she chopped his head off. Okay, that's it. He ain't coming back from that. Until we get to Halloween end. Yeah. No spoilers, Andrew. No spoilers. <laughs> Maybe his head gets chopped off in this one. Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> we may have just cut that out of sequence, and that may be our opening up the spoiler zone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So so, Scott, following on from that, what would you say Halloween H2O is about for you? What it's about? I, you know, I, I think artistically it is, you know, it's it's 20 years later, here's what that those events of that night did to Laurie Strode. You know, and also to a certain extent it's playing on fan nostalgia, especially for people that maybe saw the first Halloween but didn't go all in past part two, which... Financially, seems to be a, you know most people. And that's the thing is I mean, when you're doing about you know franchise nostalgia or whatever, it's like you got to be careful in terms of like okay, what percentage of the fan base actually kept you know kept along the whole time? I like Matrix Resurrections as much as anybody, but financially, it was always setting money on fire because you had a franchise where like a huge portion of the audience that showed up to part two made the conscientious choice not to show up to part three 15 years earlier. So yeah. what made you think they'd want to show up to part four? But I digress. And, and also where they weren't really keeping it alive as well as the thing. Yeah. yeah. Like that, that's the interesting thing about H2O is it kind of, as you said, assumes that nobody has been paying any attention to the Halloween franchise where like, as I said, watching this, it's impossible to believe this has only been three years since Halloween six. It like it feels like if I were going to a cinema in like early nineteen ninety eight seeing ads to this, I'm like, hey, they finally made a sequel to Halloween too. Yeah. What took them so long? It's like, man, I haven't seen Michael Myers in years. Yeah, it's twenty um, years ago and this the the title yeah. reminds me. <laughs> yeah. That's, there absolutely were no previous Halloween movies. There was nothing to worry about. Like I, I kind of I I admire the gumption of that, and the, and it obviously it, it did work. Um, on a budget of like seventeen million dollars, it made seventy five million dollars. Wow! Um, I believe that like again, that was the wine scenes model was always like you spend a little bit of money and you don't have to gross as much. Um, so if you perform, what a novel concept! Hey. I, I know it's <laughs> almost typical of horror movies, and and again, remarkable for the fact that this star is like Jamie Lee Curtis. You can see why they didn't want to pay John Carpenter ten million dollars. Like you can see, just when that would be a full like third of the budget. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, seven, you know, seventy-five on a seventeen is incredibly profitable. You know, seventy-five yeah. on thirty still profitable, but you're not drowning in money. And whether you know, without saying he doesn't deserve it because that's mean. No, you know, this film, you know, adding another ten million out of the budget makes it a modest, you know, a relatively okay hit rather than a blowout smash. Uh, we should talk a little bit about the, the Jamie Lee Curtis-ness of this, because obviously this is her return to the franchise. 
after you know playing Laurie Strode in Halloween 2 and providing a voiceover in Halloween 3, she basically kind of said she was done. And it is a movie that is very much structured around her. I mean, even outside of like the Laurie Strode-ness of it or the Carrie Tate-ness of it, you have that this is only the second time that she's appeared on screen with her mother, um, Janet Lee. Yeah. Um, who obviously she appeared with her in The Fog, John Carpenter's The Fog, which again was a nice little kind of family picture. Uh, and here you have the very much the passing of the torch. And again, this is the bit where I'm like, is this a little bit too self-aware? Is this a little bit too cheeky? Where you have Janet Lee pat her on the shoulder and go, if I could be maternal for a moment, and then turn around, play the music from Psycho, and have her get into not only like a car that looks like the car from Psycho, but is actually the car from Psycho. Um, that feels like not it's a my little favorite too... scene. No, no, it, it it's that is kind of too much. That's that's what most movies are these days, which is frustrating. It's, yeah, it's it's almost cleverer when she makes the little the little reference to showers. I was like, oh, that's kind of funny, but it's like, yeah, you don't need to hammer it home. We get it, and if we don't get it, it's because we're not horror fans, and that's yeah. fine. And like again, the everyone's entitled to one good scare, which Williamson is very proud of. It's like. I got a classic horror movie actor saying a line from a classic horror movie to an actor I, from that horror movie. And I I'm, like that. Okay. I, okay. No, I didn't. I, I personally forgave all of that kind of stuff. It's slightly less <laughs> dumb than when it is repeated in Halloween Kills. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> oh. Boo. <laughs> that film, I, I love that. which I think is more entertaining than the 2018 version, and you know, I've seen it a couple times. I think that one's hardcore drowning in Rise of Skywalker-itis. Oh, how dare you. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. And that's one reason I love Halloween Ends as much as I do, is because it's not. God. It really feels like it's it's... It takes place on planet Earth. Oh, I don't feel that way at all. I think, <laughs> like, Rise of Skywalker, you know where Rise of Skywalker goes off the rails is when she's like, no, I really am a Skywalker. And you're like, okay, so nothing counted. Cool. Oh, no, it's gone off the rails well before that. No, no, no Rise, Rise of Skywalker is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have all, all, all views on this part. <laughs> I, I, I love, by the way, that like the Halloween podcast is divided into factions where like listeners are charting the graph where Darren agrees with Joey, where Andrew agrees with Joey, where Darren <laughs> agrees be, with Andrew, where Scott agrees with Joey. To be clear, I, I don't think Rise of Skywalker is great. I think my reaction to it that I said to Darren is like this is like standard rubbish Star Wars stuff that they do all the time yes and I... um, and how are we so annoyed with this movie when they've done it like over and over again Andrew, um, if only we were recording an episode about <laughs> that in the next couple of weeks See, like, I, I, I completely agree with you I just but I, I do think it was more interesting when she was a nobody and I hate that they didn't have the courage of their convictions and I don't, yeah, I just don't think it's fair to compare the modern Halloween trilogy to that. Because I think they are doing interesting, they're doing a lot of interesting stuff with those movies and a lot of different stuff as well. They're taking a lot of risks. I mean, Halloween Kills, the fans hated because there were too many kills. Like, it's called Halloween Kills. We are going to talk about those movies individually as we go on. I may try to repo I, I understand why the Halloween H2O debate kind of gravitates towards the Gordon Green movies, because this feels in some ways like a prototype for it. Sure. And so in hindsight, it's hard to talk about and this without talking about it. Part of it is, and this isn't even blaming the film, this is more marketing and you know the way the world works, is that so many of these reboots and revamps and redos sort of are sold in a way that involves... Promoting pop culture amnesia. Yeah. You know, yeah. For example, 
you know, when they were selling Amazing Spider-Man in 2012, like, this, unlike the last Spider-Mans, this is a romantic comedy where Peter Parker's, the villain is a nice guy who's actually Peter Parker's mentor. And they were banking on people not going, wait a minute, I've seen the other Spider-Man movies. There are all of those things. And it worked. Because, you know, people that just report to report will take that quote saying, it's like Twilight, and just do that. And the same thing with the Batman. Like, this is the first time he's ever been a detective. He's never solved mysteries and captured clues before. Like, I've seen the other movies. I know that's false. Um, I, I think you, you pointed out, like, I think you specifically maybe pointed out, like, Black Panther as well, which erases the existence of Blade. Uh, things like, you know, Wonder Woman obviously erasing, like, more forgivably erasing Electra and Catwoman and being like, finally, a woman superhero. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, like, Captain Marvel a couple of months later erasing Wonder Woman being, finally, a woman superhero. Yeah. Like, it, it again, it, it's very much, it's like this movie. This movie is kind of the prototype for that, where it's like, finally, a Halloween sequel. Um, yeah. It's like, um, I will say, I do like the casting of Al Adam Arkin as the boyfriend, as Will Brennan. Yeah, he's great. I feel that is that is a clever bit of, like, not only is obviously Adam Arkin a great actor, I'm always happy to see him in stuff, and a great television director, that also feels very self-aware, where it's like, okay, we have Jamie Lee Curtis, who is Hollywood royalty, so who is her lover in this movie gonna be? It's gonna be Adam Arkin, the son of Alan Arkin, another second-generation actor. And so you have this kind of nice on-screen pairing that I kind of like much more than the, yeah. by the way, her mother is like Janet Lee from Psycho and driving the car from Psycho. I like, I like that he's a handsome guy, but he's also like, I am punching way above my weight. This is great. Yeah, <laughs> he is. He yeah. defo is. He has that vibe. He's so obsessed with her, even though she's clearly a fucking mess. <laughs> and then he's so shocked when she tells him who she really is. He's like, what? You're not perfect in every way. Well, but he says, hey, whatever, take off your clothes. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there is the early, this is a weird sex game vibe that it's like, so tell me this story. It's like, I'm not who you think I am. It's like, oh, tell me more. That, it's like, when, when I was three years old, a boy murdered his sister. It's like, I don't know where this is going, but, but I think it's going to sex, yeah, so let's I'm go with it. Yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. Which is uh, the right way to go about this, by the way. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's, <laughs> exactly. I feel like, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I don't know how old they are offhand at the point, but like, if I'm that age and Jamie Lee Curtis is about to have sex with me, I'm saying yes to everything yes, she's yeah, telling me. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, that's yes, fine. And. Adam yeah. Arkin plays it beautifully. Do you want me to wear the clown mask? Is that where this is going? Um, yeah. like, yeah. the, and speaking of sex games, I've I, seen a I, fish I, called Wanda. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did love that line that the character Sarah has when she's like, no sex games till I've eaten. <laughs> I like, yes. actually laughed at that. I, I thought that was terrific. That was good. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons I like this film is I really like their adult playful relationship. Yeah. Which is why I'm genuinely, you know, in movie terms, I'm sad when he gets killed. Yeah. 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 Um, I do think the horny best friend is kind of miscast, though, because he's not particularly attractive, not conventionally attractive. Oh, this is a Adam Hanbird, who is little man Tate himself, right? Yeah. So I, Holy I, I, shit. I'm a bit I uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. And I, I, I don't know how he got Jodie Lynn O'Keefe. I'm like, is he just going down on her like 24 seven or something? If so, yeah, he's for him. great. He's really good at that. Yeah. He, he'd have to be because she's fucking obsessed with him. <laughs> I, I quite yeah. like as somebody who was a teenager and who had friends who were like, you know, not necessarily the most conventionally attractive, but were incredibly horny all the time. I'm like, I relate hey, to that. That Darren. feels like a true observation. 
You are conventionally attractive, you know, Andrew. I, apologies. Oh, I, mean, I was going to say, are you talking about yourself? I had a friend who, it's a compass, as somebody who is not conventionally attractive myself, but was very horny as a teenager, Aww. I related very hard um, to that character. Um, like, this friend I, I do. I like the teens here. This friend. Yeah. I, I like... Is he in the room with us right now? I like the teen. I actually do like the teens. I feel yes. like that's the big difference between this and the previous Halloween sequels is, first of all, I like that the movie is structured. Again, it, it does this thing where it threads the needle between where Street Scream is obviously like a deconstruction of the horror tropes where you have things like, I'll be right back. And he does come back and he doesn't die because he is the killer himself. And it's like, ah, clever twist, got you. And I like that this movie kind of threads the needle where it, it does run through those classic horror tropes where Charlie does say, I'll be right back and yeah. then gets brutally murdered, yep. um, <laughs> which is exactly what you expect from a horror movie. But that it like, it avoids many of the cliches where, you know, these kids are horny and they're having sex and they're drinking alcohol and that's great. But I love that the premise of the movie is that like they're in danger because Jamie Lee Curtis didn't let them go on the cool, sexy adventure to Yellowstone yep. where they would do drugs and drink alcohol and play with its sleeping bags in musical chairs, I think is how she describes it. I like that like reversing that kind of cliche of the classic horror movie where the virgins are sacred and the promiscuous kids are punished. This is like, no. If you stay in this place, if you stay in school, you will be punished. You need to be out having sex uh, in wild environments, um, drinking alcohol, taking drugs if you want to survive. I also like the idea that like John is kind of the final girl here, yeah. where he is the target he for is. Michael. And, and I, it, again, is. you have that it's perfect casting as well, because I, I feel like Josh Hartnett has the most kind of delicate, innocent kind of virginal vibes. It's, yes, absolutely. It's, it, it, uh, there's something so soft about um, uh, him, and 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 it, it, it he is perfect for it. And I can't imagine that many other kind of actors um, uh, like achieving what 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 he did or wanting to, like be kind of like not feeling emasculated. I guess. Uh, yeah. Well, famously, Hartnett was not overly fond about this movie. He signed on to do, he wanted to do The Faculty, uh, the Robert Rodriguez movie. And in order to do that, he signed a five-picture deal with the Weinsteins, the second of which was this movie. And he was told that basically, look, nobody ever enforces those five-picture deals, Josh Hartnett. They decided to get you in the door. Um, and apparently he was not happy. He was like, loved working with Jamie Lee Curtis. Great to be on set, but I do not want to be making a, the seventh Halloween movie. <laughs> that is not where I want to see my career going. But I, I do like that the movie kind of like, instead of being a final girl, he's the final boy. Yeah. And the yeah. movie doesn't draw attention to it, but it kind of, it does feel like it's a little bit of a gender update on the classic horror movie trope without patting itself on the back for it, which I think is kind of, kind of nice and kind of important. But, and, and again, the idea of, as, as Scott mentioned, the fact that this takes place in a school, but there's a small cast, everybody else is away. So Myers isn't murdering his way through anonymous armies of random strangers. He's you you spend time with these four kids, these two adults and this one security guard who is somewhere between the two and you get to know them. And so over the course of the movie's climax, you care for each of those seven yeah. characters as Myers works his way through them. Great deal. Even like Ch Charlie and Sarah, who are quite, quite kind of minor, I found it like their deaths devastating. Like the, the, that fake out with the Scott can probably help us here because I I know it as an insincorator. 
but it's a brand name for <laughs> for, for 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 like we we, the shredder we don't tend the, to have in, those in garbage in, disposal in houses. Yeah, oh the, yeah those because um, yeah. uh, they the, seem uh, ridiculously dangerous absolutely the thing in the sink that like just shreds garbage what what do you guys call is that those? a common thing scott is that here? garbage disposal i've seen them in, in a number cool. of movies yeah but they're, they're and always horror movies the, and it yeah. always ends exactly like you'd expect but the way the way they fake out that and then have like oh the garbage disposal yeah yeah, that, that, yeah. they don't have those in america or outside of america no not yeah. really. But no, it seems incredibly dangerous. Oh, my, yeah, I, I, it's a common household appliance. How do you how do you clean it though? Do you clean uh, it? You generally don't have to, okay. because it kind of it takes care of itself. Okay. And you know, if there's yeah. something that gets gunky, the thing is that the the switch to turn it on is like far away from the thing itself. Oh, so it's like okay. under a cabinet, so you're never gonna you know do this and accidentally hit the button. <laughs> I mean, you have, you have to work, to, you have to make an effort to open the door and turn on the, you know, and that's the only device that's on that switch. Okay. There's shockingly few, to my knowledge, there's shockingly few garbage disposal industries in the country, injuries in the country. That's funny. I didn't know that was not a normal thing outside of America. No, we only experience it like sellers. They're like sellers. We only see them in American horror movies. Yeah. That's uh, a weird cultural like thing. Like what? Cellars. Cellars, like basements. Uh, uh, basements. Cellar, basements. Basements. Oh, basement. Cellars. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Well, I live in California, so I don't know what a basement is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like Zodiac. <laughs> Why, yeah. do you have a, Why do you have a, Why do you have a basement? A basement <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, 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 and yes, you do occasionally, you see them in horror movies because they're fun Hitchcock devices. And they're spooky. They're spooky no matter what. Sorry, Scott, were you saying something there? No, no, that was it. We, oh, wait, sorry, Defending the garbage disposal from your slander. <laughs> Crazy Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> you and your nationalized healthcare and <laughs> relatively uh, stable safety net and you know, refusing the social security disposals. system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nightmare. Yeah. The I I I also thought that the 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 killing of Sarah is so like her ankle is so gnarly and yeah, it's, it's yeah. just it, the the fact that she, the, like. I kind of hate that in a movie, but it's very effective when a woman is screaming like, "No, please don't do this!" and and and, and the, the 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 killer is finishing them. It's so brutal um, and upsetting. Yeah, but yeah, it, it just worked really well, um, and you cared, you cared so much. Yeah, you weren't like uh, sticking kids again. Maybe the first time since Carpenter's original. Yeah, again, like, and again, it, it, this movie is very consciously emulating Car uh, Carpenter's original. I think of things like there are shots of Michael driving the car. There's a lot of emphasis on Michael Carr driving again. here, <laughs> but they, they do, they do wonders again, very much in the Carpenter style where the camera, the car will move in and out of frame and you'll follow it. That lecture that they have about Victor Frankenstein is very yes, overtly homaging the, the lecture on fate from the very first movie as well. And yeah, that, that kind of like the the fact that you do know each of the kids and you care about each of the kids and the body count is small again feels like it owes a lot to to those movies. We should mention as well, like the casting here is good, where like these are actors that presumably audiences in 1998 cared about. Now, obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis is a brand name onto herself, but like Hartnett, as we mentioned, you know, he's he's young, he's hot, he's popping, he's going to be in the faculty. Uh, Michelle Williams, who is on, like, yeah. interestingly, Michelle we Williams. We spoke about species recently. Oh, not species again. How did I know that was Andrew's going to be Andrew's point of reference here? But yes, she did play the young 
alien in species. Um, she did also appear in Dawson's Creek as well, another Williamson connection there. Uh, we mentioned that you have Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Like, this is a cast of actors that if you're a kid or a teenager in 1998, you want, you you actually care about them as opposed to, with the exception of Paul Rudd, who was like making his first appearance in Halloween 6, the teenagers in the other previous three Halloween movies all feel anonymous. And Apart from yeah. the one who w- had the really, really wild performance in 5... <laughs> <laughs> where you just you couldn't you could not pay attention to her because it was like what is she doing <laughs> when she everything she, joey everything yeah she just yeah that was insane it's a good point about this being um like actors that people like or in the case of ll cool j uh, uh he's a james that ladies love <laughs> it's a well ladies love cool James. Ladies love cool <laughs> James. Yes, that is it. Yeah. There's no way yeah. that's a nickname. You can't give yourself such a cool yeah, nickname. Yeah, it's too long. It's too long <laughs> to be a nickname. Nobody was like, you know what they should call you, uh, James. Uh, ladies love cool James because ladies love you. I'm just like, oh, okay. Yeah, uh, Fine. Oh, if, okay. If you insist. If you're going to foist it upon me, <laughs> foist that nickname upon me. I mean, the, the LL Cool J thing is fascinating because he was apparently a late addition to the cast. A lot of his stuff was in the rewrite that happened weeks before shooting, arguably even during shooting as well. I think he's good here. I think I he's actually just, really like. Oh, I think he's yeah, fine. I, I think he's. Yeah. Go- I think he's obviously better in Deep Blue Sea because he has more to do, um, and it's kind of a more well-written character. But I love him on the phone to the girlfriend, like, and the fact that she's like, "That's shit." <laughs> But, but that shouldn't work. That it stuff shouldn't. should not work. That stuff should be unbearable. It should be so corny, but it's because he has such a great presence. Like, you just like watching him. And then it's so sad when he gets killed. And he doesn't even get killed by Mike. He gets killed accidentally. But it's okay because he comes back at the end because audiences love cool James. Exactly. I shot him six <laughs> times. <laughs> <laughs> Did he kill? Did he kill again? I, I mean, yeah, there is not to put too fine a point in it. There's probably something to be said about like the fact that Will Brennan just sees a black man wandering through the college and shoots him with a gun and everyone's well, like, he has to die. Yeah, it's... Same and he does, thing. he does feel really bad about it, though. You can tell he's... Um, I will say, though... Oh, there's a cat. Sorry. I'm so sorry. The cat just walked in their room. I'm oh, sorry, Excellent. be professional. Hi, Layla. It's a lovely, oh, lovely yes. cat. Um, <laughs> it's a lovely, it's a fluke. Um, Podcast audiences love cool cats. Love cool cats. <laughs> I will say, though, I, uh, I, I don't agree with bringing back poor Nancy Stevens just to off her in the first act. And she right. does get a much, much better go of it in Halloween Kills. That's fair. Yeah. She gets, and um, you know what I mean? She gets more to do. And I just, I'm like, and she seems like she doesn't want to be there. She seems like she's really, really hates being there. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay. I do love though the, um, we were, you were saying about kills earlier that there are some good kills. I think the throat slitting looks terrible, but I love the ice skate in the face. That's great. And the fact you don't see it, it happens off screen you don't as see well. It, you, but but they were brilliant to do that because they obviously just thought, look, we can make this look really good once it's in there, but we can't really yeah. figure out how to make it look convincing. And you're like, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of, of just other stuff, I mean, I guess we should talk about the ending that Scott kind of mentioned earlier. But yes, very famously, the ending was a point of contention uh, between everybody involved in the movie. Uh, where Yeah, um, that's shocking. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I say a point of contention between like everybody involved in the movie. 
it was really everybody involved in the movie versus Mustafa Akkad, uh, where Mustafa Akkad has said, Michael Myers is my family. He's like my son. And in my family, we do not kill our sons. Um, and I'm like, okay, fair, fair point. Mustafa, well, we'll take not, that under note. Not willy nilly. But this is this. But not so much a son <laughs> as a pot of gold. Like, yeah. yeah. I love my pot of gold. Like, and nobody's... In your family, do you turn a blind eye while your son kills a couple dozen people? <laughs> exactly. Your son's a serial killer. He's a saint. <laughs> um, but it, they, this is like um, when they tried to I, humanize Jigsaw. I, I, this, this is the most loving kind of. A kill of of of, of Michael Myers. Um, it it's it, it's like it reminded me of uh, Alien Four. Um, <laughs> oh, this like, again. There there's a fair whack of Alien Four in here where like the bit where she sees him through the porthole. It's yeah. like we, like again, it's like that bit where he, the alien gets sucked through the porthole. I always thought that was kind of recognition. I always thought that was in a kitchen because I think I mentioned before, first time I ever saw this was at a sleepover and it was terrifying. This is the first Halloween movie I ever saw, but for some reason in my head, because it's like a hole in a door, I thought they were in a kitchen for some reason. <laughs> And like for years, I've been like, "Why were they in that kitchen? <laughs> what was he doing in there?" But you need a butcher knife. He's oh, just he's working on his yeah, skills. He, he had that's one true. of. Do you imagine it was one of those doors in a restaurant where you can see? Yes, that, like, the, yeah, exactly. To, so, so yeah, it doesn't to even stop make pushing sense the door. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because it wouldn't even make sense because he would just come in. <laughs> like, why would he bother standing there? <laughs> oh. If she was holding a lot of dishes and things. Uh, he wouldn't want to. Oh, like, knock that's them true. Over. He wouldn't. It he wouldn't want to smash. Waste. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. That that sequence that sequence was based on something that happened to Williamson while he was in New York. He and a friend got mugged. Oh. Um, and basically, they fled the mugger to their brownstone and tried to lock the door. They cut their head off. <laughs> <laughs> with an axe. Um, no, no, that sequence specifically with the door. That oh, okay. sequence like where they're like where they drop the keys and Michael has to pick up the keys. That was they they yeah. couldn't find the keys and they had to keep the mugger out. Now, as they said, luckily the mugger was not Michael Myers, and so he ran away when they kind of like rattled the door closed. But they're like that's something that stayed with Williamson. Uh, in terms of the ending, we should note that like it was Minor and it was Curtis who both pushed for that. Curtis was like, "What is the point in even coming back?" to this movie if Laurie doesn't get to win. Like, what is the point in me coming back to this franchise if I don't get closure on the character's arc, if the character doesn't get a satisfying end? Yeah. And Akkad was like, no, no, no. And he apparently, he said he would withdraw support from the movie, which meant that it couldn't get made um, if they killed off Michael Myers. So it was apparently Williamson and Minor came up with the solution to this problem, which is that... A very bad, so the worst possible solution for this problem, yep. which I'm sure we'll talk about next week. But it ensured that the movie ended with, as we mentioned, Jamie Lee Curtis chopping his head off. Apparently, one of the early drafts had her chopping him in half with a helicopter propeller, um, which apparently was outside of the budget for the movie, but was something that they suggested. It's like, um, but I did, I like that, like the movie is over, and Laurie is just like, no, 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 it's not. It's not over. I know how to deal with this. Yes, I love that. <laughs> yeah. That was incredible. Because she's like, no, no, fuck this. I'm not, I'm not going to go through this <laughs> yeah. bullshit again. Yeah, I'm like, not taking a chance. Yeah, Rightly yeah. so. Rightly and so. She's like, you've messed this up every time you've had to transport him somewhere, even if he's dead. When, yeah. when, when, <laughs> when Ronnie stopped her from like stabbing him again i was like they should have shot ronnie more <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You should have properly killed him but, um, and confirmed it. <laughs> Cut his head off so he doesn't stop you later on. Like, Scott, do you think that was a part of the, the film? The film, you know, got a relatively strong reaction. We mentioned it got a very strong box office. The reviews, while negative on Rotten Tomatoes, were still comparatively positive for, like, a Halloween movie for a slasher well, movie. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to remember, it's generally, back in the day... Films like this weren't expected to get critical raves. Yeah. You know, yeah. today we have these giant, you know, everything's a culture war. It's like, oh, you know, you know, real, you know, critics aren't in touch because they didn't like the last Jurassic World movie or Minions or whatever. It's like, back in my day, you know, Dinosaur Ramp Park Rampage 6 wasn't expected to get rave reviews. And that's okay because you had more movies for adults and or movies that were a bit more stereotypically highbrow the kind that non-thrilled junkies who just wanted to watch a movie movie tended to gravitate toward, and that was fine. But yeah, to answer your question, yes, I do think the definitiveness of the ending, so we thought, was a big reason why it was as satisfying to general audiences and critics as it was. Because, yeah, it was the end. And, is you know, it, it sort of did retcon the whole narrative to where, you know, 20 years ago, Michael Myers broke out and killed about 15 people, and 20 years later he came back, but now he's dead. And it was Laurie coming to terms with her trauma and using it as a weapon and closing the book on that chapter of her life. Uh, just to, to point this out, like it, there was apparently Curtis, unsurprisingly given how involved Curtis was in the Gordon Green trilogy and how we talked about how those movies are much heavier in terms of their themes, apparently Jamie Lee Curtis pushed for a much more traumatized version of Laurie in this movie. Originally, I saw Laurie in some flop house, tormented and talking to herself, operating on the fringes of reality. But I was finally convinced it was too bleak of a place to begin, she told the Detroit uh, Free Press in 1998. And I think you do get a sense of that in the Gordon Green movies where it's like, okay, we're coming back, but we're doing it my way. I, with regards to the trauma thing, like, I I don't know. There are points where it kind of feels a bit campy. Like yes. the bit where she's out, for, she's out for dinner or she's out for lunch and he goes to the bathroom and she orders another glass of white wine and quickly downs that white wine, which is, it should, that should be an effective sequence, but it feels almost kind of comical because it kind of then you cut to the smash against the glass and the argument where the kids are buying alcohol like it, that's this when i think of tonal issues in the movie that's the sort of stuff that i think about where it's like she's a functioning alcoholic and we're seeing it but also we're doing goofy bits about kids buying booze um immediately afterwards sorry but it's she's sober in real life so and has been for a very long time so i find it interesting that she didn't say to somebody on the movie hey this isn't how a, a, an alcoholic behaves like, that's not how an alcoholic behaves. I know because I am one. And for the wine scene really bothers me because the waiter's like, are you sure? And it just, it's like there's something there and they're just too afraid to go into it. And then when her son casually says, oh, she's a functioning alcoholic, so she'll count the bottles. But he's giving her pills to calm her down. Like, it all just seems confused. And that's why I'm, I was glad it was handled, to my mind anyway, better in the David Gordon Green trilogy, where she is just a mess. She's barely keeping it together. And there's that moment when she shows up at the dinner and she starts like drinking the wine and they're like, you're drinking again? Like what's going on here? So I agree with you. I think it is kind of a strange mismatch at times. And I mean, when she's screaming in the bed and he comes over to calm her down, like that just seems really, I don't know. It, like, I, I suppose we are supposed to take it seriously, but it, it doesn't, it just doesn't feel that way. 
I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to it's hard to explain, but it just doesn't feel authentic to me. Um, and then the other, the only other big thing to note about this is this is the first Halloween, with the obvious exception of Halloween three, without Loomis in it, because oh. obviously Pleasance had passed away. But apparently Curtis was one who vetoed any idea of a Loomis stand-in for this. Um, oh. And again, Loomis said to Fangoria, in the first movie, Laurie never saw Dr. Loomis. She didn't even know he existed until the last three minutes of the movie. In the second movie, she didn't see him until the last three minutes of that movie. So for all intents and purposes, Laurie never knew who this man was showing up and yelling at her about um, about Michael Myers. And I kind of, I think that's a good idea. I think it's going to help. I would agree. I, I, I should say, though, for, um, for Donald Pleasant's uh, fans who do want to stand in, this podcast does have a man stroking a cat. Uh, so <laughs> just just imagine yeah. that uh, yeah it's a lovely cat by the way it is yeah. it is and despite the, the voiceover at the start that's not Donald Pleasance's voice despite the fact they're using the same lines in the earlier movies Tom Kane who is the voice of Yoda on the animated Star Wars shows provided the Donald Pleasance voice for that um, alright is there anything else we want to talk about this movie anything we haven't discussed already anything jumping out of people so Scott anything in your notes you want to talk about with regards to Halloween H2O um I think we covered most of the big, you know, the, the reasons why it works for me and some of the reasons why it's, you know, only a three-star movie, which is fine. I, I do think, you know, again, it's, 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 it works as a suspense picture in a way that I think most of the Halloween movies, especially after the first one, uh, do not. I do like some of the tonal, and again, I, this is, you know, as a consumer, not necessarily, you know, I do like the fact that, that it's not overwhelmingly one tone or another. To me, that feels, at least in movie logic, more plausible. And I do like that when the kills come, they are brutal and painful and sad. They're not played for laughs. They're not played for, woo, that person just got it, yay. Um, and there's a place for that. I mean, we've all watched Friday the 13th movies, and I don't, I'm not going to finger wag anyone that goes, yay, that couple just got speared in their bed, because that's why you watch those and I think, I while in retrospect, I don't like the idea of retconning all the sequels out. I think it worked for this specific circumstance. And again, in a vacuum, it was the one franchise that did that. And it's very different than when, like, 25 years later, and, like, that seems to be the way to make movies. It's like, you only count the ones that the fans liked. Like, I'm sorry, if you're making an Alien film that's a sequel, Alien 3 counts... Alien Resurrection. Easy the elbow count. Alien versus Predator. I don't know. That's a. I don't know. I'm not enough of a nerd on that franchise to make that. Yeah, call. those probably don't. <laughs> I mean, I not to get into that debate, but I do feel like the way that you do that is you just you don't need to like specifically retcon them. There's a malice to specifically retconning them. You just ignore them. Like you don't have the cops say uh, nobody's heard from Michael Myers in twenty years. It's not like he made three crap sequels. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Um, or or like as you said, the reset that you would have a Comp or like the David Gordon Green stuff. Which and again, I like those movies, but the bits where they go and he's he's not her sister, right? Just so we're clear on this, he's not. That definitely didn't happen, right? That's <laughs> definitely not something you need to worry about as an audience. I, I kind of I agree with you on that. I do. I know the Saul movies get a bit of a kicking on this podcast, and I, I'm not a huge fan of them in general. I like three and six. I love that they're basically six working awesome. backwards. Six <laughs> is amazing. That's the one that, like, fuck it, that movie's awesome. Ugh. But I, I, I do love that they're like, no, three happened, and, like, John Kramer's dead, and we're, we've been, like, for the past 17 years, <laughs> we've been working around the fact that our main character died at the end of the third movie. 
All right, and Joey, is there anything you want to talk about with regards to H two? I think we haven't discussed our meeting jumping at you. Well, we haven't talked about the mask, and uh, I think it's only fitting that he has the thin '90s eyebrows. <laughs> and the moment when it's CG is just hilarious. I love it. Why? Why would you do that? It's a mask. <laughs> like it's cheap. <laughs> Just... But the the reason for that is because there were three different masks yeah. because there was arguments on set about which mask to use and which one was better. And like the wine scenes were like, just use the mask from six because that's the one that we paid for. Yeah, which fair enough. They're like, we're not buying another one. The only other thing yeah. I'll say is I love a dumb waiter in a horror movie. Like the yes. only other one I can think of that does it is Ready or Not has a great yeah. dumb waiter gag. I think it's it's because it's again it's that suspense of like are they going to get up in time or get down in time and are they going to get crushed? That's also why they don't need a porthole on the kitchen door. Ha! Exactly. Yeah. You are correct, Andrew. Exactly. You are correct. <laughs> Someone's worked in a kitchen. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's actually. But back to back to like sus- back to like the suspense thing. I like the reintroduce the dumb. It's Chekhov's dumb waiter. Yes. Where you have the dumb waiter waiter introduced early on for the rose and stuff, so you know as an audience member it's there. Yes. And it's gonna come back. Like that is just good visual storytelling, functional yeah, storytelling. It is. Like it, it, it's it's very efficient slasher movie making. And Andrew, anything from yourself? Anything you want to talk? About we haven't discussed already. Yes, yeah, so Scott. Scott mentioned things that like took it like down to to a, a three star movie. For me, although it's very subjective, I did not like the music at the end. They, they, they it, it, I was kind of like, what's this for? It was like the one last breath of the movie. They just uh, uh, brought in this 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 Creed song, and for me, that kind of sacrificed a oh. a, a, a point or two. That was my sacrifice. That's the nineties, though. That costed a star. No, I, I like. But that's the nineties. You know what I mean? I, I mean, without that movie, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying I agree. I think the the rating would have been higher for me. Like I I was with with my arms wide open, like ready to give it. Um, a, a, a better rating, but I just felt like I was in my own prison, um, listening to it. So, uh, no, that, that's the that's the that's how I felt about it. But yeah, it's it is very nineties. The, the 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 Creed thing. Yeah, it's just very of its time. Like we look back now, yeah. and we're like, that's shit. <laughs> um, we should note as well, inappropriate smoking. The movie does open with smoking. It does. It does. We have a, a obligatory Robocop reference with the um head being cut off like the samurai in Robocop Three. I guess. Oh, there you go. <laughs> we, we do go back a lot to the samurai in Robocop 3. Don't we? I like that as the Halloween sequels have gone on, we've gone from referencing Robocop to referencing the bad Robocop sequels. <laughs> yeah. I think we've rep- we've referenced the, the yeah, yeah the, the second one too. The samurai several times. And in food waste, movie. there was a very large, huge spread prepared that I don't think ever got eaten. Yeah, yes. Yeah. No, sadly not. <laughs> I mean, I do feel like LL Cool J's character at the end, who seems like the only one who really has a happy ending, he just wanders into the kitchen and finds that spread. Is like, great. He's fine, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> six times. I'm shot him six <laughs> times. <laughs> oh, God. All right, then. Um, so what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something, something they're enjoying at the moment. Um, so to give Joey, to give Scott a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, I have been enjoying uh, Strike Force 5 was a podcast that came out when there was the WTA strike uh, that was 
Oh, it's Colbert, Kimmel, and it's the late the Chacho house, right? Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I I don't think Fallon is very good, but I think it makes it better that he's in it because sometimes they're just like ripping him. Like, um, mm-hmm. I John Stewart had an appearance as well, which was very good. Um, uh, Letterman was on as well, and I guess if if you like kind of classic late night, like a lot of their stuff. Uh, now is kind of hit and miss and realistically they have to do like what is it five shows a week um so that's under- four shows a week at least yeah. yeah yeah so that's understandable but they um it's terrific john oliver's on it as well um and and and, and i found him just hilarious on it and it seems pretty kind of like off the cuff and improvised they're just very very funny people who are kind of i guess sometimes locked in that format in a way that's not especially helpful for them to kind of be themselves and i think they're 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 great when they're just kind of riffing off of each other so i i, I was enjoying that recently as of the recording of this i believe they, they, they've since stopped uh, the strike possibly. has resolved yeah, yes yeah, <laughs> exactly but it, it was to it was to raise um several months ago at this to point. raise money for their their um their staffs for the writers their writing staff very yeah. cool um and Scott, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment, whether related to this movie or unrelated to the movie? Offhand, I mean, again, I, I mentioned on or off this podcast, I don't remember, uh, the Exorcist TV show that aired on Fox several years ago yeah. that mm. I just happened to get into. And again, in terms of preparation for the new movie, it might have been a mistake because I I think the show was very good and um, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are a big fan of David Gordon Green's last horror franchise reboot. I mean, like usually, usually I, 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 but you know what? I will do the right thing before I see Exorcist Believer. I will watch Exorcist Two for for uh, a high low. Yeah. Yes. For to to standardize your um just to go yeah standardize your ratings. That's a yes to, to to lower my exp- what's the term it's on the top of my head Low, wanna... manage your expectations no, it's, it's yeah, a yeah. palate cleanser is it not really andrew not no, really no it's like what the opposite of a palate <laughs> cleanser is like the opposite yeah that always backfires that backfires sometimes when i watch the bad sequel that turns out to be still better than the one that i'm about to watch <laughs> like when i watch robocop 3 right before i watch the robocop remake oh, uh, oh. <laughs> this movie's actually about something yours only pretends to be about something i, I mean it is about robot samurai um, but like i to the point of like, we should mention the Exorcist show. If you're in the UK or Ireland, it is available on Amazon Prime. It stars Gina Davis and Alan Rook, right? And then the second season has John Cho in it. Yeah, I think I I'm mostly through the first season. John Cho has not shown up yet, so I'm guessing he'll be in the second season. And honestly, that's the, one of the reasons I finally started is that there are just several actors that I like. It's like okay, and I had heard good things. And I'll be honest, I I have not watched most of the prequel and or sequel television shows or you know Bates Motel or, or uh, that's uh, all that comes to mind for, which Hannibal or I guess it's Hannibal's the other one there's the upcoming oh, yeah, Crystal I did Lake watch show Hannibal. and Peacock Hannibal's great yeah, yeah. Hannibal um, is phenomenal Andrew's just gonna quietly stare at me um, while I say like that the guy who great. plays Will Graham like I I, 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 I <laughs> he's perfect <laughs> you dancing. for me I think the first two seasons of Hannibal were exceptional it kind of lost some steam in season three for me I completely agree with you. I completely agree. Fair. I think season three just fell apart. And actually, because of fan response, I think as well, they started listening to the fans 
which is never a good idea. And then the the way it ended as well was just so stupid. I really like the cliffhanger end. Oh, I hated it. I really like the literal cliffhanger end. Hated it. And again, listeners who are charting this on the graph, you can put Scott and Joey beside each other on that, and Darren on the other side we, of the board, we, and Andrew we, on a separate. We never side. listen to our fans either, unless. They give us a five-star review. (laughs) (laughs) In which case, we will pander. We will will pander. pander. Uh, And Joey, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Just because we mentioned it, I would say if you haven't watched Freaky and the Happy Death Day movies, I would say definitely check those out. If you're a slasher fan and you're looking for something new, something different, something good. I loved The Blackening as well. Uh, That was out only recently here. It came out a bit earlier in the States. I just think... It's so hard to find a modern slasher that, as Scott pointed out, isn't kind of beholden to the classic slashers. And all of those do something different, do something fun, something exciting. The gore is great. The performances are great. So, yeah, I just think if you're looking for a fun modern slasher, you can't go wrong with any of those. I'm trying to even think of like more and it's terrible because I can't I genuinely can't think of more modern slashers that I love, which is awful. Like we're in a dearth (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, when when Happy, Happy Death Day came out, I I just I felt like running the numbers, and it was basically like the first hit slasher movie in like a decade. Yeah, um, it, it just it it's if the MTV Movie Awards were still cool, she would have won the Best Actress Award that year for Happy Death Day. She's fantastic. Yeah, and I'm sad that she hasn't broken out to do bigger and better things yet. Yeah, but, but I think it's it'll it'll come for her. I hope anyway. Um, and yeah, I. I Total Killer is also out. I have not seen that yet, which is not a good sign, given how close we're recording to that release date. I'm a little bit iffy about that one, because when I watched the trailer, I was all in until I realized it was set in the 80s. And then I thought, okay, haven't we done this before? (laughs) I like that. I was all in until I heard the premise of the movie. Well, Uh, I just thought it was... Is that the one with the same premise as The Final Girls from like seven years ago? Yes. Probably, The the Final Girls is another great slasher movie, actually. Another great modern slasher. Very meta, but not in like a smug kind of way. But yeah, it's just, and I love Kiernan Shipka. I thought Chilling Adventures of Sabrina was great and, you know what I mean, messy, but it did a lot of things right. But yeah, I just, something about it being set in the 80s just puts me off. I feel like we've been there, done that, and better. But hey, it could be a masterpiece. And because we've been doing this series, because I have to realize I need recommendations each and every week, I've been doing several things in tandem as a pattern. First of which is, this is the seventh sequel in a horror franchise, so I'm going to recommend a great seventh sequel in a horror franchise. I'm going to recommend Wes Craven's New Nightmare, nice. which is his prototype of Scream, which ties nicely into the discussion that we've had here. Uh, I think it's a masterpiece. It's like, again, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is one of those franchises that, because it has released so few movies, it has a surprisingly high average quality because three of them are legitimately great and two of them are actually good. <sighs> And the remake was so bad that I retroactively apologized to Rob Zombie for my Halloween ban. As in, as in personally? Did you? No, <laughs> metaphorically. Robert, it's Scott. <laughs> and Robert's hey, just sitting there going, I, I, Bobby, <laughs> how you doing? Hey, Bobby, Scott. baby, it's me. <laughs> Remember how I said I hated your Halloween movies? And Zombie's like, no, no, I don't. I, it's I, like, okay, well, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, he's like, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear that. I thought we were friends. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other recommendation I will make um, is because this is... Um, Arg. Okay, never mind. I've completely forgotten what the other recommendation was going to be. And that's, oh, because I'm watching John Carpenter. You could take a minute to think about that. Carpenter. Yeah, Carpenter. Carpenter. I'm watching Carpenter movies. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm in the Carpenter. I'm rewatching Carpenter movies in parallel because I thought that would be a fun thing to do. And I obviously don't watch enough movies. I need to watch more movies. So I've been watching Carpenter movies in parallel with these in sequence 
So between the release of Halloween 6 and Halloween H2O, Carpenter released two movies. The first of which is Escape from L.A., which is kind of like what Alien Resurrection is to Andrew, Escape from L.A. is to me. A movie that I'm not sure is good, but I kind of enjoy for what it is. It's the only time that Carpenter really had a blockbuster budget and a blockbuster platform. Is maybe an argument for why he shouldn't have those things, but I'm happy for him. He deserves it, and he certainly earned it, and I think it's fun. Uh, Carpenter thinks it's one of the best movies he's ever made. He is entitled to that opinion. <laughs> Don't tell anyone, but I like L.A. more than New York. Oh, what, That's it. Oh. Scott's on Team John. Scott's on Team Carpenter here. I think you're here. Yeah. Um, he might be listening, the other... Andrew. Or Darren, sorry. <laughs> sorry, that's my... Uh, I love Prince of Darkness. Yes. Prince of Darkness is amazing. Prince of Darkness rules. I do yeah. appreciate all the public transport in uh, Escape from New York. No, it's just, uh, uh, yeah, much less traffic. Um, but th- th- that is actually a plot point in Escape from LA is that <laughs> they cannot navigate Los Angeles traffic which I love um, the, other, the other movie that he released in this gap was uh, Vampires John Carpenter's Vampires released in 98 which is such a misanthropic hateful like spiteful petty angry pulpy movie and I love it so so much um, it's a screenplay where, like, Carpenter says himself, he wanted to write the least likable protagonist imaginable, and then he cast James Woods in the lead role. <laughs> it's incredible. It's like one of those post-Tarantino movies. It's like a Western. It's a conspiracy thriller. It's a Vietnam movie, and it's a vampire movie, and it stars James Woods as the most hateful human being who has ever lived. And Darren's like, yeah, give me more of this, please. Yeah, it's a very prototypical James Woods performance, and I mean that as a compliment absolutely and, like it's one of those things where it's like in, in 1998 I was like this guy must be an amazing actor like I mean to play an asshole that convincingly it's incredible <laughs> um, but yeah it, it's not a movie for everybody but I like it I think it's maybe Carpenter's last good movie so I would recommend that with some caution alright then if listeners are looking for a bit more Scott Mendelson in their lives where can they find you yeah, watch up to sorry what was that uh-huh. Uh, sorry, sorry. You're, I'm rushing towards the too end. Fast, too fast. Up. But but where can we find you? What are you at? Watch oh, up. I'm at therap.com. I'm at X or whatever the hell they call Twitter today. Ugh. Definitely I'm on Blue Sky, but... Yeah, in the same way all of us are on Blue Sky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those, nobody goes to that restaurant anymore. It's too crowded, but not really. Um, <laughs> but we're all on Twitter. By the way, more reason. great Part 7 sequels, Harry Potter and Deathly Hollows Part 1 and Furious 7. Yes. Which we have you down to cover. And I like Star Trek Generations. Uh, so so does Andrew. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and we have you. We will have you at some point in the future to talk about Deathly Hollows Part One, Ooh. where Andrew is convinced it's not a movie. Oh, if, you, if you want to. I think it was what? fucking <laughs> morons dislike Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part One, and I include uh, my wife and my mother in that category. My, he, okay. What do you think it is? Like a ham? I thought my view was on the uh, uh, Deathly Hollows Part Two. Oh, okay. I thought your view was Deathly Hallows Part 1, where it's oh, not like really a movie. Yeah, they're both um, good. But, so, oh, okay. All right. But anyway, <laughs> sorry for... Del- we, we have a hard out that we've already missed, and I'm not stoking <laughs> okay. the fire here. Um, Joey, where can we find you? What you have watch up to? And is Harry Potter the Deathly Hallows Part 1 really a movie? But no, the first... Ask the first question. <laughs> yes, it is. And I'm still on Twitter until it burns down, like I keep saying. At Joey LDG. Uh, that's where you'll find me defending Scream 6 and talking about how shit Saw 10 is. Um, 
All right, then. And you can follow the podcast at 250 or on Stitcher and SoundCloud iTunes. Um, it, join us there. We'll be covering Halloween Resurrection next week with the fantastic, the wonderful Jess Dunn joining us. She wasn't able to make the discussion of Halloween 5, so don't worry. We rescheduled her for an equally impressive Halloween sequel. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Scott. This has been an absolute pleasure. You're very welcome. This yeah. was a pleasure. Sorry for keeping you so long. It's and, so early and- in the morning. <laughs> So early in the morning for him. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll let you go. All right, take care, guys. Thanks so much.